Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted and honored to talk to Professor Ali Atai from Zaytuna College. Welcome back, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, Paul. Thank you for having me again. It's an honor and a privilege to be back on Blogging Theology. Alhamdulillah, thank you very much. And for those who don't remember or don't know, Dr. Ali Atai is a scholar of biblical hermeneutics, specializing in sacred languages, comparative theology, and comparative literature. At Zaytuna College, uh, he has taught Arabic, uh, creedal theology, comparative theology, sciences of the Quran, introduction to the Quran, seminal ancient texts, and other subjects as well. He received his MA in biblical studies from Pacific, Uni Pacific School of Religion and his PhD in Cultural and Historical Studies in Religion from the Graduate Theological Union. He's a native Persian speaker and can read and write Arabic, Hebrew, and Greek, and he's not bad at English as well. Um, that was a joke. Um, today, Dr. Ali Atai uh, will do a long-form presentation with detailed slides and will uh, offer crucial insights concerning the phenomenon of religious Zionism as well as the philosophical underpinnings of this movement. More specifically, the presentation will cover major events in the history of the Palestine-Israel conflict, a Muslim spiritual framework, Jewish Zionism, Christian Zionism, and key insights into the present genocide. So, over to you, sir. Thank you, Paul. Thank you again for having me back. Um, uh, so as your audience may recall, a few weeks ago, I appeared on BT and presented on radical Judaism. Uh, and as you said, Paul, since then, I've uh, developed a more long form presentation with a bit more detail mm. and an important historical uh, introduction to Zionism. So what I will present today um, is at times uh, very similar uh, to the content I presented um, last time. But I'll try my best to avoid repeating myself uh, verbatim. Uh, if there's some repetition, uh, that's okay. Uh, the Quran says that uh, reminders benefits believers. Um, and as you said, I do have detailed slides this time to facilitate the learning process. And I can actually make these slides available to your uh, subscribers, inshallah. So let's go to the slides inshallah okay is the title slide here so yeah i want to begin by saying that as muslims uh it's time for us to expand our knowledge base knowledge is power mark van doren he said and i'm paraphrasing 
He said, if you haven't studied the Bible, uh, then you haven't been educated. <clears throat> so it's the most influential book in the history of Western civilization. Uh, there were uh, Sahaba uh, at the time of the Prophet وسلم, uh, who were very learned in the texts and traditions of the people, the book of Ahlul Kitab. This really improves the da'wah, right? It really improves our calling people uh, to this religion. And, and the proof of that is how we see thousands of Christians every year converting uh, to Islam. You, you're a convert yourself, uh, and you're also a professor of, of biblical history, theology, early Christianity. Uh, Islam, as you know, seems to solve the theological, Christological, historical, and, and textual issues uh, concerning the Bible. Uh, according to Western historians, the discipline of comparative religions was founded by Muslim theologians, right? So Abu Rayhan al-Biruni, known as al-Baronius in, in the West, uh, al-Biruni was just a polymath. Uh, he knew Arabic and Farsi and Hebrew and Syriac and Sanskrit. He wrote about Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and Buddhism. His magnum opus is called The Annals of, of India, Tarikh al-Hind. Uh, this was the first highly academic book ever written on the history of religions, according to Anne-Marie Shamel. Uh, there was also Imam Tejuddin al-Shahrastani, the author of the magnificent Book of Nations and Creeds, Kitab al-Milal wa-Nihal. So the point is that Muslims were masters of comparative religions. I mean, this is our discipline, okay? This was our contribution to the academic discourse. So in my opinion, we won't fully understand what's happening in Palestine right now unless we sharpen our understandings of Jewish and Christian theology. And the audience yeah. will see uh, what I mean, inshallah. But first and foremost, uh, we need to consider this, this calamity, this musibah within the framework of the Quran and Sunnah. And so the, the next few minutes is going to feel like a bit of a sermon. It's going to feel a bit uh, preachy, but I, I think it must be said, uh, if we're Muslims, um, nothing should take precedence over the Quran and Sunnah as our lens of understanding these recent events, right? So we wear the bifocals of the Quran and Sunnah. This is our lens, right? Not Foucault, not Marx, not Mao, uh, not liberalism, not nationalism, not communism. I mean, these were tried and failed, not some critical theory, not some postmodern philosophy. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us that if we should disagree about anything, right? The Quran says, فَإِن تَنَزَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ if you should disagree about anything, to refer it back to the messenger. If you believe in Allah in the last day, that is the best and most beautiful resolution. So that's chapter 4, verse 59. Uh, when we as professed Muslims put anything before Allah and his messenger, this is really when the fitna happens. So what is fitna? Fitna is... Uh, civil strife, um, social chaos, uh, disunity, giving precedence and priority to anything over Allah and his messenger is displeasing to God, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is when the fitna happens. And this is the sunnah of God with the believers. So there's a verse in the Quran that says, And protect yourselves against a fitna which does not exclusively befall uh, those who did injustice among you, right? And know that Allah is severe in punishment. That's chapter 8, verse 25. So this is the nature of this world, injustice and oppression uh, committed by certain uh, specific individuals or groups or governments. This can lead to suffering of the masses, the innocent, 
like the people of Gaza, they are innocent. Now, what about the Quran's statement? The Quran says, that no bearer of a burden bears the burden of another, right? So according to our teachers, this statement is referring to the akhirah, okay, in the afterlife. In this world, in the dunya, we suffer the consequences, the consequences of the sins of those who came before us. I mean, this happens all the time. This is happening right now. If I commit murder, right, God forbid, uh, and I go to prison, my wife and kids will suffer due to my sin, right? They are innocent of my sin as far as spiritual accountability is concerned, as far as the akhirah is concerned, but their lives in this dunya will be turned upside down because they will inherit the consequences of my sin. They will inherit the consequences of my bad decision. So that's on me. That's not on them. But in this world, they will suffer. So what we do in this world could drastically affect the lives of other people. This is all part of the test. And this idea is, is also found uh, in the Torah, uh, as we find it today, the Ten Commandments, the Covenant Code, Exodus chapter 20. It starts by saying, I am the Lord thy God has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto this, uh, yourself any graven image or likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water beneath the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. Uh, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, right? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. In other words, our sins have this transgenerational consequence to them, to the third and fourth generation, the Torah says. If political leadership or people in positions of power or influence or just individuals make bad decisions, Innocent people could end up suffering and dying for generations. This is simply what happens in the dunya, in this world, right? And in the Quran, God issues a warning. He says, "La yatakhil al-mu'minun al-kafirin awliya min dunil mu'minin." So, it's chapter three, verse twenty-eight. Believers should not take disbelievers as allies. Instead of believers, and whoever does so has nothing to do with Allah. Unless it is a precaution of some sort against their tyranny. And Allah warns you about Himself. And to God is the, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the final return. So, how much have the Palestinians suffered for the injustices committed by others? You know, how much have the people of Gaza in particular suffered for the injustices committed by others? They inherited the bad, the consequences of the bad decisions of non Muslims and Muslims. Right, bad decisions, bad alliances. Of course, there was imperialism and Zionism, right? But also Arab nationalism, Turkish nationalism, secularism, uh, disunity, rebellion against the caliphate, right? You had the Young Turks Revolution, the McMahon Hussein uh, correspondence. All of these things had repercussions in the world where the innocent were affected, right? But here's the reality. Here's the haqiqa. Inna Allah idha ahabba qawman ibtalahum. Right, this hadith. In the Sunan of Ibn Majah, when God loves a people, he tests them, right? So this is amazing, the disobedience of some people. The disobedience of some people leads to difficult conditions in the world through which God will demonstrate his love for another people. So we should never forget that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in charge. A, a man once asked the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, So he said to him, O Messenger of God, which of the people has tried most severely? Uh, and the Prophet said, the, uh, uh, the Prophets 
And then those nearest to them and those nearest to them. And this hadith is in the jami' of Imam al-Tirmidhi. The, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, suffered the death of six of his seven children. You know, just think about that. And he knew about the death of his daughter Fatima, alayhi salam, that it would happen six months later. He knew what would happen to his grandson, Imam al-Husayn, radiallahu anhu, right, the Ahlul Bayt of Karbala. Uh, he suffered the loss of his soulmate, his beloved wife, Khadija al-Kubra, alayhi salam. Uh, you know, people were slandering his wife during his life, right? Uh, no one suffered more than the prophets, and the prophets are the most beloved ones to God. So 106 years of oppression, 106 years of trials and tribulations, uh, that tells me that the Palestinian people are beloved to Allah. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that God is giving them the prophetic treatment, that God is raising their ranks in his sight, that God is purifying their souls in this world, uh, God willing, inshallah. They'll have great stations, high stations in the Akhirah, where they will not even remember their suffering in this world. And the evidence uh, for this is, is the following. Uh, how many non-Muslims have we heard of recently who have been absolutely smitten, right, by the amazing iman, the faith of the Palestinian people, their, their unshakable iman? As someone said recently, how many Muslims have had their faith rejuvenated by the Palestinians? How many people? When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. People have recently fallen in love with the Palestinian people. How many yeah. people have the Palestinians inspired to read the Quran? I mean, people are converting uh, to Islam by yes. seeing responses of the people of Gaza to their tribulations. Absolutely right. It's a very widespread phenomenon. We've seen it on TikTok. I, I've heard multiple reports and many sources precisely this phenomenon you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they just can't believe what they're seeing. So there's a spiritual revival happening right now in the world. The epicenter is Gaza. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sami Hamdi, he calls this the great awakening, right? That people are waking up to the reality of Israel and Palestine. Uh, this is also called redemptive suffering, right? When, when the righteous suffer, when the innocent suffer, it's supposed to wake us all up, right? It's supposed to rouse the world. Uh, from its slumber. We saw a, a man holding his little girl in his arms, his dead little girl in his arms and saying, Alhamdulillah, this is the qadr of Allah, right? Inna lillahi wa inna ilahi raji'un. We saw a woman with blood all over her clothes, you know, saying, I've lost my children. La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Oh Allah, accept them in your presence, right? There's stories like this, many stories like this, an absolutely overwhelmed hospital staff taking yeah. a short break and reciting salawat upon the Prophet Sallallahu a 13-year-old girl trapped under rubble with her parents and siblings, telling her rescuers, save them before you save me, right? That's a 13-year-old girl. There was a little boy, he looked like he was eight years old, uh, who said that when he was trapped under the rubble, you know, in the darkness, he turned and he saw an angel, and then he turned and he saw his rescuers, right? And I absolutely uh, believe him. Yeah, no, These are yeah. awliya. Yeah. There was a, a young boy in Gaza, uh, maybe, I don't know, 10 years old, 11 years old, something like that, 
who is having his head stitched up by a doctor is a huge gash in his head and there's no anesthesia. So what did he do to suppress his pain? He started reciting the Quran. I mean, I mean, this is what we read about in, in our books, right? The stories of the Salihin, the stories of the Awliya. Um, as one of my teachers said, this is like Sahaba level faith. I mean, these are amazing people. Um, and here's another one. I don't know if you heard about this one. This happened in America, actually. Uh, some privileged Zionist college student at Yale University uh, took to social media. Um, the reason is because the university cafeteria at Yale removed the word Israeli from the menu item, Israeli couscous. Really? She was so outraged, you know, what, what, a, what a poor victim, right? And as it turns out, it wasn't actually true. Uh, meanwhile, in Gaza, you know, doctors in besieged hospitals are forced to amputate the crushed limbs of children without anesthesia, right? So, so what causes fitna? What causes this social strife, this social chaos? We're really, from our perspective, disobedience to Allah and his messenger and disunity among ourselves. Mm. Right, the Quran says, As for the disbelievers, they are allies to one another. Right, unless you believers act likewise, in other words, unless you believers take each other as allies, there will be fitna and great corruption in the land. So, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He demands from us Muslims unity, fraternity, uh, respect. A closeness as an ummah. The word ummah is related to um, which means mother. So we are one family, right? The Prophet is closer to the believers than their own selves. And Ubay ibn Ka'b, he said, He is their father. So the Prophet Muhammad is like our spiritual father. And his wives are our mothers. Or elsewhere in the Quran, Ibrahim. That this is the creed of your father, Abraham, right? Uh, so we are one ummah. Elsewhere in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Right? That indeed, your only ally, your only protector is God and the, and, the, and the messenger and those who believe. So we're always asking, when will our condition change? Well, it will change when we actualize this verse, when we take it to heart. When Allah, his messenger, and the believers become our only ally. And wali here is in the singular, which is interesting to, em to emphasize this unity of purpose, a, a, a unity of conviction. We will come out of this quagmire only when our only source of hope is Allah, when we turn exclusively to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we make tawbah and turn back to, to, to the Quran and the sunnah of our messenger. Uh, there's another verse in the Quran, chapter 3, verse 103. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَاعْتَسِمُوا بِحَبِّ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا وَاذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ كُنْتُمْ أَعْدَاءً فَأَلَّفَ بَيْنَ قُلُوبِكُمْ فَأَسْبَحْتُمْ بِنِعْمَةِ إِخْوَانًا That hold fast all of you to the rope of God that he extends down. Right? And the hadith says this is the Quran. And do not be divided amongst yourselves. And remember the blessing of God upon you. When you were enemies and God unified your hearts. Right? And you became by means of his blessing brethren. And the uh, exegetes of the Quran, they say here that the ni'mah, the blessing here, is the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. So what do we gather from this verse, chapter 3, verse 103? Adherence to the Quran and sunnah leads to ta'lif of the qulub, unification of the hearts, and akhawiyah bain al-mu'minin, and brotherhood, true brotherhood among the believers. And then a change in our external conditions will come. We will move from the Meccan phase to the Medinan phase. 
So our, our izza, right, our honor is through Islam, nothing else, right? So God will not accept anything else from us. Our state in the world will not change unless we realize and we take it to heart that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can help us. When we turn to Allah with all of our being, then our conditions will improve. Uh, when we realize that the only opinion that matters is Allah's opinion, then we will see change. No one else is really going to help us. Everything else is a Band-Aid. Well, we can write to our congressmen, right? And we should, but it's, it's a Band-Aid at best. You know, the bleeding might stop temporarily, but the wound will not heal, right? So real healing, that is to say, uh, substantive transformation of our condition will only come with Muslim unity and Muslim adherence to Allah and his messenger. So we're really, we're, we're neither left nor right on the political spectrum, right? We're Muslim, we're, we're moderate, we're a middle nation. We're neither blue pill nor red pill, we're green pill, as one of my teachers uh, said. You I know, like that, uh, green pill, that's a new one. I've not heard that before. Yeah, yeah, green pill, that's a, exactly. Mm. In America, there are so-called uh, free speech conservatives who want to ban things like TikTok because it yeah. spreads anti-Zionism. Now, I'm not a big fan of TikTok, but isn't that ironic? That loyalty to uh, Zionism trumps the First Amendment. Uh, many conservatives are Darby and dispensationalists, and I'll talk about what that is exactly. Uh, but basically, these are people who have unconditional obedience to Israel. In other words, in their minds, and this is not an exaggeration, they are bound by their religion to defend Israel. They are bound by their religion to take everything Bibi says as being gospel truth. I mean, it is the ultimate con job. And we're going to see how this happened. But that's that's the right wings. How's the left wing? I don't know if you heard about this, but recently an Obama national, national security advisor verbally assaulted a, a poor Arab halal truck, truck driver in, in New York, right? This was Obama's guy, right? Uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, right? Uh, so this Obama advisor, he said that the death of 4,000 Palestinian children was not enough. This was weeks ago. It's over 10,000. That's right. Yeah, he, he, yeah. It was, it was, it was trying to. Buy, it was, uh, was buying some food or some uh, takeaway yeah. or something from a street vendor who who they, they were Arabs or Muslims, and he yeah. and this was recorded and uploaded on social. I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, and and then he he slandered the Prophet Sallallahu with a big yeah. smile on his face. Yeah. So none of these people are our allies, right? Our only ally. Your only ally is Allah, His Messenger, and those who believe. So as individual Muslims, we first look to our the, the state of our own hearts, right? Our own actions should concern us a lot more than the actions of others. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, how is our prayer? Are we praying five times a day at proper times? Uh, leaving the prayer is very dangerous. One of my teachers said that non-praying Muslims are low-hanging fruit for the Antichrist, the imposter Messiah who's coming. Uh, how's our uh, zakat? How's our income? Is it halal? How are we treating people? These are very important. Are we physically, verbally, emotionally abusing people? Are we doing that to our own families? Are we protecting our, our tongues and our eyes and our ears? Do we attack other Muslims or even Muslim scholars that we don't see eye to eye with? So we have to be very honest with ourselves. Uh, and the other verse in the Quran I wanted to quote, that Allah does not change the condition of a people until they change what is within themselves. And if Allah wants some evil for people, there is no turning it back. And apart from him, they have no guardian. So this is the Quranic perspective, right? It's very tough on the nafs. It's very tough on, on, the, on the self. 
because Allah demands so much more from us. Allah commands a high standard for us. And how do we know that Allah commands such a high standard? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا You have in the Messenger of God a beautiful pattern of conduct. And when we compare ourselves to the Prophet, we notice that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the Prophet also said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَتَبَ الْإِحْسَانَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ that, uh, uh, that God demands from us excellence in all things, right? So a, a kafir is going to act like a kafir, but a Muslim, right, is, is held at a, high, a higher level. Okay, so enough uh, of the sermonizing now. Let's go to the next one here. Okay, okay, so with that said, what is Zionism? Okay, and again, some of this I mentioned during the last podcast, so please forgive the repetition. So broadly speaking, Zionism is a modern secular nationalistic movement aimed at reestablishing a Jewish homeland. It's a movement to create a Jewish ethnostate born in Europe. So that's very important, right? European anti-Semitism gave birth to Zionism. Historically, the Jews had a very difficult time in Christian-dominated countries in Europe. There were pogroms and exiles and massacres and blood libels. The plague was blamed on them at one point, blamed on the Jews. All of this culminated in the final solution, the so-called final solution to the Jewish problem, which uh, the Holocaust, which in Greek means a whole burnt offering, right? In Hebrew, it's called Hashoah. The Jewish experience in Muslim countries, however, uh, was very different historically. Muslim Spain, Muslim uh, Africa, North Africa, uh, Muslim Palestine. So generally there was peace, prosperity, tolerance, brotherhood, trust, not to mention incredible scholarship. Uh, Jewish systematic theology was born in Muslim lands. Maimonides wrote in Judeo-Arabic, his magnum opus is called Dalalat al-Ha'irin. He wrote in Judeo-Arabic, the guide for the perplexed. Muslim students uh, at Al-Azhar to this day engage with his texts. Sadia Gayon from Iraq, he wrote his masterpiece, uh, The Book of Beliefs and Opinions in Judeo-Arabic. So that's Arabic with Hebrew letters. So Jews and Judaism flourished in Muslim lands. In 135 uh, of the Common Era, in the wake of the, uh, the failed Bar Kokhba rebellion, uh, so this was one of these... Uh, uh, pseudo-messianic movements. The Roman Emperor Hadrian expelled the Jews from Jerusalem and renamed the city Aelia Capitolina uh, after his clan Aelius and his god Jupiter Capitolinus. Uh, the Jews were not permitted to return and live in the city of Jerusalem until the Muslims reopened that door for them in the seventh century, right? The Khulafa Rashidun. Uh, Jewish scholar Daniel Kancherbach, he calls this the Pact of Omar. It's really just the Sharia, right? The Jews have protected status as Ahlid Kitab, people of the book, under the Sharia. Uh, the Muslims taking control of Jerusalem was a great victory for the Jews. Uh, the Muslims called that city Al-Quds al-Sharif, essentially the Holy Land. Uh, the Quran calls Palestine literally the Holy Land, Al-Ardul Muqaddasa. Uh, the so-called father of Zionism, Theodor Herzl, was an ethnically Jewish atheist. Again, I point out the irony. Theodor means gift of God. He was an atheist. Of course, he wrote the famous treatise Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state in 1896. According to Herzl, Jewish assimilation in, in Christian-dominated Europe, which was just not possible, right? Jews needed a state of their own. That's how bad the anti-Semitism was in Europe. It's just not possible for Jews to live in Europe. Europe was just too hostile. So, so Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland. Now, the vast majority of religious Jews before World War II were vehemently anti-Zionist. In the early uh, 1920s, Rabbi Joseph Chaim Sonnenfeld, okay, he founded an organization in Jerusalem called the Aida Charedit, the Aida Charedit, which means the Congregation of the God-Fearers. 
so the Haredim, they're also called the Haredim or the Haredi, right? The Haredi Jews. Uh, they're often referred to as ultra-Orthodox or strictly Orthodox. They actually don't like those terms, right? They just prefer to call themselves traditional Jews. Uh, so I call them traditional Orthodox. The word Haredi actually uh, comes from the Tanakh, the book of Isaiah, when God describes the righteous man. He says, Hared al-Devari, the one who trembles at my word. Uh, there's also a Christian group called the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, right? For the same uh, reason, they, they, they quake, they tremble at the word of God. Um, and they're very nice people. Uh, there's, there's a similar description uh, in, of the righteous in the Quran. The Quran says, That the skins of those who fear their Lord tremble from the Quran, right? That's chapter 39, verse 23. So, okay, so, so Sonnenfeld became the chief rabbi of the Ada Haridit, the congregation of the God-fearers, the congregation of the tremblers, however we want to translate that, uh, in Jerusalem in the very late 19th century. And this is what Rabbi Sonnenfeld had to say about Zionism and Theodore Herzl in 1898. So this is one year after the first Zionist Congress, right? So he says, with regards to the Zionists, what am I to say? What am I to speak? There's great dismay also in the Holy Land that these evil men who deny the unique one of the world and his holy Torah have proclaimed with so much publicity that it is in their power to hasten redemption for the people of Israel and gather the dispersed from all the ends of the earth. They have also asserted their view that the whole difference and distinction between Israel and the nations lies in nationalism, blood, and race, and that the faith and the religion are superfluous. Dr. Herzl comes not from the Lord, but from the side of pollution. Wow. And here's uh, Sonnenfeld and Herzl. So Sonnenfeld on the left, these are contemporaries of each other, both ethnically Jewish, but very, very different in their mm -hmm. worldviews. Uh, Herzl on the right, I mean, diametrically opposed. Okay, and, and Sonnenfeld's uh, sentiments were indicative of the general sentiment of religious Jews at the time. So the first major problem with Zionism from a traditional Orthodox perspective, okay, is that it changes the very essence of what it means to be a Jew. Before Zionism, the essence of Jewishness was Torah observance, which of course was rooted in the fear of the Lord, right? Proverbs 9.10 is an iconic verse. Many people have heard of it. It says, uh, right? the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Right? So this was the essence, the johar of being a Jew. A Jew fears the Lord and strives to know him. There's a sect of Hasidic Orthodoxy called Chabad. Right? They're actually quite well known. Their focus is on religious uh, revival and outreach among Jews. They try to bring secular Jews into more devotion. They're kind of tablighi, basically. Uh, major cities in the U.S. Uh, have a usually have a Chabad house. Chabad is an acronym. It stands for Chokma, Bina, and Da'at. So wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. And this leads to knowledge and understanding of God. Now, one of the greatest theologians in Jewish history was named Rav Sadia Gayon. He lived uh, and died in Iraq during the Abbasid Caliphate. He died in 942 of the Common Era. He was the director, or, or Gayon, of the Babylonian Yeshiva, the Jewish Academy, in Iraq. He was also famous for translating the Hebrew Bible into Arabic. He famously said, Our nation is not a nation except in its Torahs, 
So he was referring to the written Torah, right? The Tanakh or Hebrew Bible and the oral Torah, the Talmud, which is the Mishnah and Gemara, i.e. the tradition, the Torah and its tradition, right? And these two are called HaTorah Min HaShemayim, the instruction from heaven. Now, as Muslims, we do not agree with much, much of what is written in the Torah and the Talmud, but that's not the issue here. The important thing here is that Zionism is indefensible according to the long-standing tradition of Judaism. Uh, of course, we want people to become Muslim first and foremost, but if they're not gonna, if they're not gonna become Muslim, we should encourage faith communities to at least adhere to their own long-standing tradition. These traditions are tried and tested. They represent the sum of the contributions of thousands upon thousands of brilliant minds. So according to Rav Sadia Gaon, it is only a common faith that unites the Jews, not a common language, uh, not a common culture, nor a common land, but a common religion, which is called Judaism. And at the heart of Judaism is the Torah and its tradition. Forsake religion and you forsake the essence of Jewishness. Secular Zionism throws the Torah and its tradition in the garbage and redefines a Jew along purely along racial lines. Okay, the, I mean, the rabbis, they point out that the word Jew in Hebrew, Yehuda, contains the four letters of the Shema Meforash, right? The sacred name of God, yod Hey vav Hey. This is sometimes pronounced as Yahweh. This was further Latinized as Jehovah because there's no Y in Latin. They use an I or a J. The point is the Yehudim, right, the Jews, are supposed to be the people of God, the people of Yahweh. Zionism as a settler colonial project was founded by atheists. Uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes is attributed to Israeli historian uh, Elon Pape. <clears throat> he said, quote, most Zionists don't believe that God exists, but they do believe that he promised them Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and Zionism is a religion. It's their new religion. It's substituted Judaism. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so for the Zionist, the essence of Jewishness was Jewish ethnicity, the Jewish race. For the Zionists, religion was more, you know, cultural, not essential. The law of return in Israel to this day demonstrates the, demonstrates this. If you're an atheist, mm -hmm. okay, but Jewish by race, right? So your your mother is Jewish, has Jewish blood. You can make Aliyah to Israel. You can immigrate to Israel as an atheist. So like Sam Harris or Bill Maher, if they wanted to, they can make Aliyah to Israel. It's it's race over devotion. But even here, they contradict themselves. So let's say that both of your parents are descendants of Aaron, right? In other words, you're 100% Jewish, a Levite, a descendant of the Kohanim, right? But you're a, you converted to Islam. You are not allowed to make Aliyah to Israel. So they want ethnic Jews, but not all ethnic Jews, right? Now, after Rabbi Sonnenfeld's death in 1932, Rabbi Yosef Dushinsky became the chief rabbi of the Eda Haridit in Jerusalem. In 1947, Yushinsky spoke to the newly formed United Nations, and he famously said, we express our definite opposition to a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. And I'll get to the reasons uh, from a theological uh, perspective. Uh, but here's an image here of um, Rabbi Dushinsky on the left, and of course, Rav Sadia Gayon on the right. Now, another very influential Orthodox rabbi was named Abraham Isaac Kook, okay, and he was living in Palestine in the 20th century. And Kook was one of the major founders of something called religious Zionism. And this is an actual technical term. In Hebrew, it's known as uh, tzionot datit, right? The followers of religious Zionism are called uh, dati la'ummi, the national religious. 
the so-called national religious see no contradiction between Zionism and Orthodox Judaism. Uh, rabbi Cook in 1920 was declared the chief rabbi of all Palestine during British mandate. So he was the first Ashkenazi, a chief rabbi of all Palestine under British mandate. Uh, <clears throat> the Haredim, they considered Cook's uh, rabbinate uh, to be a farce, to be fraudulent, uh, not to mention highly blasphemous for, for reasons I'll explain shortly. Uh, Cook founded the famous Merkaz Harav in 1924, the so-called universal yeshiva. Yeshiva, of course, means seminary or academy, the universal Jewish seminary, right, in Jerusalem. The Merkaz Harav uh, became and still is the most famous uh, pro-Zionist Orthodox yeshiva in the world. According to their official website, they describe themselves with the following words, the mother of Zionistic yeshivot, the very first Zionist yeshiva and the flagship of Da'ati Ummi, the national religious community. So they're very, very proud of themselves. Now, Cook saw Zionism as a way, uh, a means, or we might say a stepping stone by which God was going to bring about the Jewish redemption under the Messiah. Okay, so Cook's son, Yehuda Cook, presided over the Merkaz Harah for six decades until 1982. He died in 1982, Yehuda Cook. At the Merkaz, uh, thousands of Jews have been indoctrinated into Kukian Zionism. So according to Kukian Zionism, the state of Israel will eventually bring about the emergence of the Messiah. Okay, the state of Israel constitutes what's known as the Hadchalat Haga'ula, the beginning of the redemption. So this is how they justified Israel's legitimacy religiously. So if we just get this straight for a minute here, we're saying that the nationalist, secular, divisive, uh, ethnic cleansing, and highly irreligious state of Israel is preparing the way for the Messiah. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is the claim now. So according to Cook, God promised the Holy Land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is the duty of the descendants of these three men to initiate a return to the Holy Land, to seize the Holy Land, to implement the various mitzvot or commandments that are particular to the Holy Land, and we'll talk about those mitzvot, and then eventually the Mashiach HaMelech ben David, the King Messiah, son of David, will come and rule the world from Jerusalem. Now, after World War II, after the Holocaust in particular, uh, uh, many Orthodox rabbis in Europe began changing their minds about the Zionist movement. There was a major shift. They now started considering the Zionist project. They started considering religious Zionism. Uh, in light of the Holocaust. And, and unlike Herzl and other secular Zionists, European rabbis did have a very strong emotional attachment to Palestine. And so Zionist ideas were eventually uh, appropriated by the Orthodox community and given a religiously sanctioned makeover, like what Kook did, basically they took lessons from him. So to put it bluntly, Zionism is a hijacking of Orthodox Judaism. For the traditional Orthodox, this was enormously blasphemous at best and rank apostasy at worst. And I'll get to the reasons why in a minute here. So here's on the left, we have Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, one of the founders of religious Zionism. And on the right, there's a photograph of more recent times of the inside of the Universal Jewish Seminary, the, Mer the Merkaz Harav in Jerusalem. Okay, so today uh, there are three major divisions of European uh, Jews, that is to say, uh, or sorry, Western Jews, that is to say European and North American Jewry, Reform, Conservative, and Modern Orthodoxy. I mentioned this last time. Modern Orthodoxy is also called Neo-Orthodoxy, okay? Modern Orthodoxy is not the same as traditional Orthodoxy. 
Okay, there are some key differences. They look the same, right? They, if you see if you see a, a a modern Orthodox rabbi and a traditional Haredi rabbi, they look the same, but there's some key differences. So modern Orthodoxy, it tries to harmonize sacred knowledge with secular knowledge. This is called Torah Umadda. The the Haredi, right? The, the traditional Orthodox, the Haredim, they find this a bit problematic. Of course, Rabbi Samson Hirsch, who died in 1888, was one of the main influencers of modern Orthodoxy. He was the founder of something called Torah im Derech Eretz movement. So Torah with the way of the land. Now, Rabbi Dovid Weiss of the anti-Zionist Natura Carta International, he said that modern orthodoxy is really just a euphemism for compromised Judaism. Okay, so for the Haredi, also known as the traditional orthodox, the modern orthodox have unjustly appropriated the term orthodox. Orthodox means correct belief, right? Modern orthodoxy is not correct belief. They are essentially imposters under the false label of orthodox, especially in terms of Zionism. So modern, you know, orthodox in, in orthodox in quotes uh, tend to be very devoted and zealous Zionists, whereas traditional orthodox tend to be either non-Zionist or anti-Zionist. And one of the major influencers of the worldview of modern Orthodox Jews was none other than uh, Abraham Isaac Kook. Now, I said earlier that the vast majority of, of religious Jews before World War II were vehemently anti-Jewish. Why were they anti-Jewish? One major reason, as I stated, was because Zionism, as conceived of by Herzl, shifted the focus okay, of Jewish identity uh, from one of religion to ethnicity. Another reason was more theological in nature. So for before the blasphemy of religious Jewish Zionism, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, okay, Jews the world over believed, based upon explicit texts in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, Christians called the Old Testament, that their exile from the Holy Land was justified, that it was divinely decreed due to their disobedience, Jewish disobedience. So this is the traditional understanding in other words, the Holy Land, okay, the Promised Land, was given on condition. Mm. This is extremely important. It was conditional. Obey God, or else this land will reject you, and God will thrust you out. This is stated dozens of times in the Tanakh and various books, uh, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Uh, for example, uh, Jeremiah 16, 13. So Jeremiah, a Hebrew prophet, warns his people. And the speaker here is God speaking through Jeremiah. So this is what he says. He says, Therefore, I will cast you out of this land, okay, and into a land that you do not know. Uh, Deuteronomy 28.63, you'll be uprooted from the land you're entering to possess. So this is called a wa'id in Arabic. This is called a threat. There are dozens of threats like this, all throughout the Tanakh. Ezekiel 33, 24 to 26. Uh, it says, Ezekiel says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Ben Adam, son of man, the people living in these ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he, yet he possessed the land. But we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Therefore, say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Since you eat meat with the blood still in it, and you look to your idols, and you shed blood... Haaretz tirashu? So this is a rhetorical question. Should you then possess the land? Right? In other words, because you sinned against God, again, this is Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 24 to 26, because you sinned against God, 
God will cause you to dispossess the land. And when the dispossession comes, in reality, this is from yourselves, to use the Quranic phrase. This is what you earned. In other words, you cannot turn around and blame God because God warned you about this. Ezekiel continues, you rely on the sword. You do detestable things, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Ha'aretz tirashu, should you then possess the land? So according to traditional Judaism, no one other than God, by means of the Messiah, can initiate a return to the Holy Land. No one other than God, by means of the Messiah, can reestablish a Jewish nation, kingdom, or homeland. They must wait patiently for the Messiah. And the Messiah will only come during a time when Jews, as a global community, move toward Teshuvah or Toba. And this is what the rabbis teach. They further say that in every generation, there's a potential Messiah. But if the Am Yisrael, if the Jewish people, are not returning to God and returning to the Torah and devotion, then God will not raise that Messiah, that would-be Messiah, uh, will die, and the next generation will come. Eventually, someone will come. The religious Zionists will self-fulfill this, eventually. This person, it seems, will likely be the Messiah Dajjal, or the imposter Messiah, predicted by the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi But then we know that our master, the real Messiah, Isa Alaihi Jesus, the son of Mary, peace be upon them, will return. And what does the Quran say? Verse uh, 159 of Surah number four. Uh, that basically at some point, every single Jew and Christian will believe correctly in Jesus, peace be upon him, which means what? They're going to become Muslim. So this is really the determining factor when, when the two future messiahs appear, the imposter messiah and the true messiah. The true messiah will oppose the Zionists. According to the Quran, you know, Jesus, peace be upon him, was taught the Torah and gospel directly by God. And of course, when he returns, he will know Arabic, he will know the Quran and Sunnah. And so he will convince multitudes from the good and just people of the book that he is the true messiah. Um, probably the greatest Jewish theologian and philosopher of all time, Maimonides, uh, wrote something called the 13 Principles of Jewish Faith. We talked about these last time as well. It's called the Shilosha Asar, Ikare Emunat Yehudim. We went over these. Uh, this was an essential creed or aqidah that, that he articulated in his Mishnah Torah. Principle number 12, he said, I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah. And even if he should tarry, I nonetheless will wait every day for his coming. So the Jews are under a 2,000-year divinely mandated diaspora. Okay, And in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if, if Allah had not ordained exile upon them, he would have severely punished them uh, in this world. So this is what all Jews believed prior to 150 years ago. This is traditional Judaism. They must remain in exile. Any attempt to reestablish any land, any land, through military means, in lieu of the Messiah, is viewed as rebellion against God. This is kufr, and God will severely punish them. Any land, even if there's some uninhabited island the size of a, a soccer stadium, football stadium, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the Jews have no right to it whatsoever, according to the traditional orthodoxy, the Kharedim, not these Zionist so-called orthodox. I mean, they're, they're heretics in reality from a traditional uh, standpoint. Uh, the Kharedim also cite what's known uh, as the three oaths, right? The Shalosh Shavuot. And this is very, very important. I mean, this is found in the Talmud, uh, Ketubot 111a, uh, but it's based upon 
a book in the Tanakh, the Shira Hashirim, the Song of Songs. So, so all of these uh, writings are considered sacred and inspired by traditional Judaism. So the three oaths are drawn from the Tanakh and the Talmud, okay? And from our perspective, yeah, there's truth in both. There's truth in both the Tanakh and the Talmud. There's also things that are questionable. There's things that are uh, 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 apparently false. Um, uh, so the Charedim, they charge the national religious Jews and Kuki and Zionists with breaking these oaths, okay? Uh, the first two oaths relate to the Yehudim, the Jews, and the third to the Goyim, the Gentiles. So oath number one, we will not return en masse to the Holy Land. Okay, in other words, Jews cannot make any attempt to end the exile. This includes establishing some temporary Jewish state or kingdom outside of the Holy Land. The Jews must continue to live in exile as long as God wants. And how do they know when enough is enough? Well, God sends his Messiah. So remember when, uh, remember what Rabbi Dushinsky said to the UN, we express our definite opposition to a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. Oath number two, we will not rebel against any nation. Okay, in other words, Jews must be loyal citizens of any host nation, even if they are being oppressed. Okay, the traditional Orthodox, they say that if some uh, oppressive Gentile king is oppressing and humiliating you because you're a Jew, you should thank Hashem, thank God at that moment. Thank God that you are being oppressed and not the oppressor. And oath number three, the nations will not oppress the Jews excessively. In other words, it's never going to be too much to handle. It'll never justify a premature, man-initiated ending of exile and return to the Holy Land. Nothing justifies ending the exile without the Mashiach. The famous Satmar Rabbi Yoel Teitelbaum, the founder of the Satmar Hasidic dynasty, he said that the Holocaust was divine punishment for violating the three oaths, God's punishment upon European Jewry for wow. Zionism. I mean, that's his opinion. So this is very, very serious business mm. for the Orthodox, okay, the traditional Orthodox. Now, according to the Quran, when the Sahaba suffered a calamity, a musibah uh, at Uhud, some of them said, uh, anna like, how could this be? Where did this come from? Well, what's the answer given by God? That this is from your own selves. I mean, that's God's response. Uh, that is to say, because of your disobedience. And, and these were Sahaba. These were the best generation. And these were people much better than us. right? Now, don't get the wrong idea. This is, this is not victim blaming. Obviously, this does not absolve or exonerate the, you know, the mushrikeen, the idolaters, for what they were doing to the Muslims. No, they were wrongdoers. They were oppressors. They were persecutors. There's no doubt. Uh, there's no question about this. This does not give a pass to the oppressor. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, first and foremost, reproaches the Muslims for their disobedience. Again, God sets a high bar for us, right? Again, like a kafir, what's going to act like a kafir? But a Muslim is held at a higher standard. So uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is training us to be self-reproaching. And then the ayah ends by saying, In Imam Suyuti, he said, Surely God has power over everything, including the giving of assistance and the withholding of it, as he punished you for disobeying the direct command of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And notice also there were Sahaba who were killed at Uhud by the Mushrikeen who did not disobey the Prophet, right? As we stated, the actions of a few can affect many. So this is not some, you know, repackaged original sin doctrine, right? No, I'm referring to the consequences of sin. And again, we find commensurate ideas in traditional Jewish theology. Again, this is the sunnah of Allah with the believers throughout history. One of the most famous anti-Zionist rabbis, 
I didn't put him on the slide here. Uh, his name was Rabbi Yisrael Mer Kagan, Mer Kagan. And he was a great holocaust. He was like a jurist, right? He died in 1933. There's a famous quote from uh, Rabbi Yisrael Mer, Mer Kagan. He said, quote, the Zionists are the dead limbs of our people, which mm -hmm. caused the entire body to rot, right? The Zionists are the dead limbs of our people, which caused the entire body to rot. In other words, these Zionists are making trouble for all of us. Their fitna is affecting all of us, right? Um, so this is a crucially important spiritual practice to be self-reproaching, right? Not to self-victimize, right? Uh, and here's a uh, photo of Rabbi uh, Yoel Teitelbaum, founder of the highly anti-Zionist Satmar Hasidic dynasty. He has many, many disciples, including Rabbi um, uh, Yaakov Shapiro. You say, if you look at th these faces and you compare that with many Zionists, you look at this man's face, uh, yeah. You can see, as you see, humility there. You can see a, 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 even, you know, a, a man who is not arrogant. Uh, compare that to the, the the proud Zionist, aggressive kind of uh, assertion. Uh, you, you look into his eyes and see humility. That, that's my take. Right? Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. And I, I encourage people to to listen to his one of his students, Rabbi uh, Yaakov Shapiro, who is doing his rounds in in the um, in the in the podcast, uh, and uh, you see that same type of humility. Also, David uh, Dovid Weiss of Natura Carta International. You just see this 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 sincerity, this humility that you don't see with these Zionists. You're absolutely right. Uh, the traditional Orthodox they they cite a passage in the Torah to demonstrate the importance of upholding the three oaths in our time, right? So this is found in the Book of Numbers, right? The fourth book of the Torah, or Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book. So this is Numbers 14, 40 to 42 for the note takers. Of course, the book of Numbers in Hebrew is called Bamidbar. Bamidbar, it means in the wilderness. So this book narrates the events of the 40-year wanderings in the Sinai Desert. We are told that some of the Israelites under Moses wanted to leave the wilderness prematurely without God's permission and enter the Holy Land. So God decreed 40 years of wandering or exile. Uh, but some of the people of Moses wanted to end that exile immediately and march into the Holy Land. Right? So... Some of the people said, I'm quoting here, uh, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. In other words, uh, they're saying, we're not going to wait any longer. We're going now. This is taking too long. We're, we're going to go now. And that continues, Moshe. And Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will never, ever succeed. Leaving exile early and entering the land and reestablishing the land without God's permission will never succeed. Okay, it continues. This is now verse 42. He says, Moses is speaking. Do not go up, meaning don't make aliyah. Don't go to the Holy Land. Why? Because the Lord is not with you. And so anti-Zionist rabbis to this day continue to tell Zionist Jews that this blasphemous project of theirs called modern Israel will never succeed because the Lord is not with you. So in our terms, there's no tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So remember what Rabbi Dushinsky's predecessor, Rabbi Sonnenfeld said, Dr. Herzl comes not from the Lord. He's not from the Lord, but from the side of pollution. Uh, and here's another verse. This is um, Deuteronomy 31.30. Deuteronomy, of course, is the fifth book of the Torah. 
So here God is speaking to the Israelites through Moses. And God says, for I know, and this is also something that's pointed out by anti-Zionist traditional rabbis. For I know that after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I've commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Right? Very interesting. They will do evil in the latter days. So it's very important then to draw a distinction between traditional Judaism and Zionist Judaism. Okay, the latter I also refer to as radical Judaism. Zionist Judaism is radical Judaism. Okay, there are many Jews today who describe themselves as Orthodox, like you know Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire, Dennis Prager of, of PragerU. If they're Zionist, they're radical. So for me, the terms Zionist and radical are interchangeable. A Zionist is a radical. Now, what do I mean by radical? So the English word radical in its origin means to pertain to the root of something, right? And the word radical has different meanings depending on its context within a discipline. So in linguistics, radical has a certain meaning. In geometry, it has a certain meaning. In medicine, in botany, even in slang, right? But what does the term radical mean in the context of religion? So for me, radical, something that is radical in a religious context constitutes a drastic and highly significant departure from the normative tradition. And by normative, I mean what the scriptures clearly say in their most apparent meanings, the plain and obvious meanings of the text, right? What is muhkam wadir? This does not deny that there is an inner meaning to the text, an esoteric meaning, right? So for example, Imam al-Ghazali, he says in the Mishkat al-Anwar, وَلِلْقُرْآنِ ظَاهِرٌ وَبَاطِنٌ The Quran has an exoteric and esoteric dimension. But the apparent meanings take precedence, okay? Uh, and these apparent meanings cannot be uh, denied. So there's exoteric exegesis and there's esoteric exegesis. But the problem with esoteric exegesis, there's a danger in esoteric exegesis, is that it becomes eisegesis <laughs> if, one should, uh, if one should violate the clear and obvious verses, right? Of course, exegesis means to take something out of a text that's already there, Eisegesis means to put something into a text that's not there. Okay. And of course, the, the famous joke is what many Christians have done with oh, yeah. the uh, so-called Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, when they don't practice exegesis, when they read, say, Isaiah 53 and other passages, they practice ECGesis or ICGesus. I see Jesus all over the place. They're actually reading him into texts, yeah. not reading him out of the scriptures. Exactly. In other words, it's, it's pouring into rather than actually doing authentic yeah. interpretation. Yeah, they're just shoehorning their Christology into yeah. a text and violating the clear meanings, what's known as the Peshat or the Vahir, meanings of the text, which is impermissible, which is really bad uh, theology. Um, so that, that's what I mean by normative. What do the scriptures say in the plain and obvious meanings? And by tradition, I mean something that is widely known and long-standing among the scholastic community. Therefore, a radical is someone who advances a drastic departure from the very root of the religion. So in recent years in the academy, we've seen the rise of something called radical hermeneutics, right? These are interpretations of scripture that fly into the face of centuries-long, uh, centuries-long established theological and moral orthodoxy, like an LGBTQ, reading of the story of Lot, a feminist reading of, this, of Surat Maryam. These are interpretations of sacred texts that arrogantly dismiss the work of thousands of scholars over hundreds and hundreds of years. And these were scholars who were grounded or rooted in the foundational principles of their respective faith traditions. And not only are these radical hermeneutics, 
uh, dismissive of traditional scholarship, but they're also dismissive and derisive of the scholars themselves, whom they often vilify and insult. So a Zionist reading of the Bible is a radical reading of the Bible, okay? Um, now, we should know that there are hundreds of thousands of traditional Orthodox Jews who vehemently oppose Zionism on both theological and moral grounds. They accuse Zionists of hijacking Judaism. Their, their motto is Yehudi Lotzioni, a Jew is not a Zionist. So they actually anathematize Zionist Jews. They make tukfir of them. They believe that there is a fundamental in, in, uh, incompatibility between Judaism and Zionism. Uh, rather than the, the modern state of Israel being a Jewish nation, uh, they call it an abomination. So one such organization is called Natura Carta International. Uh, their leaders are aligned with the Muslim uh, community on this issue of Palestine. They even attend major Muslim conventions and events. Uh, there's also Satmar, there's uh, Shomer Emunim, not to mention Jewish Voices uh, for Peace. So these are, these are good people, these are just people. Uh, do we agree with everything that anti-Zionist Jews say? Uh, no, of course not. Uh, they're Jews and we're Muslims. We have differences and those differences matter. But I encourage uh, listeners to look up some of these very courageous rabbis, and they're really courageous. They're truly courageous. Okay, R Rabbi Dovid Weiss, Rabbi Elfanon Beck, Rabbi Aviad Niger, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro, I mentioned him earlier, Rabbi uh, David uh, Mivaser. And, and remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Laysu sawa'a min ahlil kitab. Right? I, I mentioned this last time as well, just another reminder that they're not all the same, the people of the book. We don't lump everyone in the same category because Allah himself doesn't do that in the Quran, right? So it's important that we look at the Quran holistically, right? The Quran says, yes, it says, uh, You will find the most severe among mankind in enmity towards the believers, i.e. the Muslims, to be the Jews and the idolaters. Okay, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, And uh, and of the people of Moses, it's a community that guides by truth and acts with justice. All right, so I can't stress this enough. When it comes to the issue of Ahlul Kitab, the Quran requires something called tadabbur, a deeply reflective and penetrating intellectual engagement. So the Quran is like a jumla wahida, that Ibn Hisham, he said. The Quran is like a single sentence. Take it like a single sentence. We must approach the Quran holistically and be very careful about blanket statements. The Quran is nuanced. We must be nuanced. The Quran is wise. We must be wise. The Quran makes distinctions. We must make distinctions. Mm. So just a quick review here. So this is what happened. Essentially, Zionist ideas were adopted and appropriated by many Ashkenazic Orthodox Jewish, le Jewish leaders starting in the early 20th century. And these ideas continue to grow in popularity among their segment after World War II. So these Zionist ideas were sort of dangled in front of their noses until they finally succumbed to them. Unfortunately, they did not have the istiqama that was required of them by their own long-standing tradition to resist the temptation. To have istiqama means to stand upright, right, for the religion, to be uncompromisingly principled, right? Um, so this is very, very important. Uh, to be a principled person. We find this in the Quran, فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتْ that God commands the Prophet, be upright as you have been commanded. Um, and so Zionism became something of a radical reform movement within Jewish orthodoxy among the Ashkenazim, the European Jewry. Uh, according to the non-Zionist traditional Jews, known as the Kharidim, both secular Zionists and religious Zionists 
stake highly radical positions. In other words, they violate long-standing established principles of Judaism. The real world consequences of, of, of which, by the way, are identical, the ethnic cleansing and genocide of Palestinians. These secular Zionists, again, violated centuries-long understandings of what it meant to be a Jew. What is a Jew? For secular Zionists, the essence of Jewishness is to be of the Jewish race. That's it. Religion is not essential. The Torah is not essential. God is not essential. If you have Jewish blood from your mother's side, even if you're an atheist, come make Aliyah to Israel and contribute to the displacement of the Palestinians. Come move to this kibbutz in the West Bank and terrorize the Palestinians. So those are the secular Zionists, right? But what is the radical position of the religious Zionists? People like Rabbi Abraham Isaac Kook and his Merkaz Harav and his son Yehuda uh, Kook. Um, so continuing with our review, for these religious Zionists, the Zionist movement constitutes what's known as the beginning of the redemption. That is to say, Zionism is a means by which God will bring about the Jewish redemption under the Messiah. For the traditional Orthodox, this is the great blasphemy, right? Why is that? Well, because ortho according to the religious Jewish Zionists, a Jew may no longer remain diasporic. He can now reject this idea of a divinely decreed indefinite exile. What's the result? Come make Ali to Israel and contribute to the displacement of the Palestinians. Come move to this kibbutz in the West Bank and terrorize the Palestinians. Same result. But it gets even worse. So according to the radical religious Zionists, God promised the Holy Land to the sons of Jacob. And as we said, it is, it is the duty of his descendants not only initiate a return to the Holy Land uh, to seize the Holy Land, but to implement the various bellicose uh, mitzvot commandments in the Torah that are particular to the Holy Land. And then we said the Davidic Messiah will come uh, and rule from Jerusalem. So when I say that the radical religious Zionists want to implement the various bellicose mitzvot or commandments in the Torah, what mitzvot am I talking about? Well, mitzvah number 528, to commit cherem of non-Jews from the river to the sea, that's genocide and ethnic cleansing. Mitzvah number 604, to exterminate Amalek, uh, whom high-ranking Israeli officials have explicitly identified as the Palestinians, wholesale genocide of men, women, children, and animals. So this is radical Judaism. Traditional Jews have different ways of dealing with these mitzvot, right? So leisu sawa'ah, they're not the same. And I'll come back to this later, inshallah. So cherem and Amalek, this is very, very important. I talked about this last time. We'll come back to this. It's very, very important. Um, but here is just a, an image of some anti-Zionist Jews um, during a demonstration. And then here we have... Um, Rabbi Dovid Weiss on the left of Natura Karta International. And then on the upper right, we have Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. He's a Satma rabbi, a student of Teitelbaum. And below him, Rabbi Elchanan Beck, also of um, uh, Natura Karta International. Okay. So at this point, I want to give the audience a brief and basic history of modern Palestine, okay, for the sake of context. Now, obviously, there's a lot that I'll leave out. And much of this, most of your audience probably already knows, but for the sake of those who are learning, you know, let's keep it basic. I'm certainly not an expert in the history of Palestine or the, the history of the politics of Palestine, but we'll do uh, the best, our best with our limitations and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his barakah and tawfiq. The expert here is really Dr. Ha uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian, co-founder uh, at Zaytuna and UC Berkeley professor. He's probably the best in the world. Uh, but also I recommend uh, Dr. Rashid Khalidi's book here, uh, it's called The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonial Conquest and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. Dr. Khalidi is the, um, the Edward Said chair at Columbia. 
So I'll be referring to Dr. Khalidi often. Um, let's start in 1917. This is where Dr. Khalidi starts. So in 1917, the British Empire under General Edmund Allenby, right, a staunch British uh, Zionist, conquered Palestine from the Ottomans and gave it to the Jews to be their homeland. So this is called the Balfour Ex uh, Declaration. Most people have heard of this. Uh, they wanted to create, quote, a national home for the Jewish people. Now, Arthur Balfour was the foreign secretary under the prime minister, David Lloyd George. Uh, Balfour, by the way, was highly anti-Jewish. Now, this is a lot of news. This is, this is news for a lot of people. Okay, a lot of people don't know this. Balfour did not want Jews to live in England. In fact, many British Jews outright, outright denounced his declaration because they saw it as a means of ethnically cleansing the Jews living in Britain, uh, which had happened before um, a few times. Uh, Britain had a history of expelling Jews. Also in 1905, when Balfour was the prime minister, the British parliament uh, passed the Aliens Act, which was designed to keep Jewish refugees fleeing pogroms in the Russian empire from entering Britain, right? So Balfour was highly anti-Jewish. The British, you know, they did what they did for strategic and imperialistic reasons. Uh, the British uh, already controlled the Suez Canal, but they also wanted to control the shortest land route to India, right? Which was from Haifa to Basra, right? Uh, in other words, the shortest route from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. And here they built roads and they built an oil pipeline and air bases. And so Zionism was a useful tool for Britain to carry out its imperialistic aspirations. Uh, nonetheless, Jews from Europe began pouring into Palestine, British Mandate Palestine, which obviously caused tensions between the indigenous Arabs and Jews and the newly arrived European Jews. Of course, the vast majority of the population, some 94% were Arabs, and the land was called Palestine. Uh, the Arabs tried strikes and boycotts. Uh, they were brutalized by the British. In the 1920s and 30s, various, uh, various Jewish militia groups sprang up in Palestine, okay, groups like Haganah and Irgun. And these groups were terrorist groups, okay, even yeah. the New York Post, even Winston Churchill uh, called them terrorists. I mean, Churchill, in my mind, was also uh, a terrorist. I mean, he carpet bombed hundreds of thousands of civilians uh, in Germany. Um, now, the, these groups, uh, Haganah and, and Irgun, they would commit political violence, atrocities, murder, massacre, and absolutely terrorize the Palestinians. At some point in the late 30s, British interest in establishing a Jewish state began, began to wane. Okay, so it was no longer in the strategic interests of the British uh, to, um, to uh, help the, the Jewish cause. So it was the eve of World War II. Uh, the British assumed that they would be fighting in the so-called Middle East, and so they didn't want to further agitate uh, the Arabs. And so the British began to restrict Jewish immigration to Palestine. Okay, this was after the Arab revolt of 1936 to 39. And uh, the British articulated this in the famous white paper presented to parliament in 1939. So the white paper said that in 10 years, an independent Palestinian state would be established with, a, with an Arab majority and that future uh, Jewish immigration had to be according to Palestinian consent. Now, Irgun didn't like that, right? Not, not one bit. So Irgun, by the way, was actually trained by the British. So what did Irgun do? They blew up the King David Hotel in 1946. That was the headquarters of the British. So they killed Muslims and Jews and Christians. They killed um, men, women, and children. 91 people killed, about 50 were injured. So a terrorist attack. 
Um, here are some interesting facts. Menachem Begin, the former prime minister of Israel, was the former head of the Irgun, uh, and Ariel Sharon, uh, another former prime minister, was once a member of the Haganah. Uh, and the Haganah, after 1948, became the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. So, I mean, think about that one. That's like, I always use the analogy, that's like the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, becoming the American police and military. Uh, many of them actually did. Another interesting fact, a, a very little known fact. So here on the slide, here's a coin that was struck in 1934 in Germany. So you have a Star of David on one side and a swastika on the other. So the Zionists and the Nazis were actually working together in Germany during the beginning of the Third Reich. Okay, so Hitler is the chancellor of Germany in 1934. Why were they working together? Well, they shared a common goal. They both wanted Jews to leave Europe, in this case, Germany. So the Nazis were Zionists. Uh, you know how we say today, we say Zionism and Nazism are two sides of the same coin. Well, here it is. They're literally two sides of the same coin. It's quite that, but quite, but, uh, it just, this is quite shocking to some of us in the UK. We, we had a, a mayor of London here by the name of Ken Livingston uh, mm. a few years ago, um, who made the very point. Uh, he, he alluded to this fact uh, that you are mentioning now in an interview. And he was hounded out of office. He was told that uh, this is a lie, this is anti-Semitic, this was fake news, this was false, it never happened. And at that point, I already knew what you're saying, and I knew it was it was a fact. I'd uh, seen these coins. And yet it, the, the point being is actually you cannot say this publicly. Um, yeah. It is so dangerous that you could be a senior politician and a respected political leader in office and actually be banned. And now he's cast into the wilderness. Uh, it's a very sad story. So this is not just historical detail. There's actually, even to speak of this is yeah. problematic at best in, in a, a country that prides itself on freedom of expression and liberty. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah an inconvenient truth, right? And here yeah. in German, in German, it says a Nazi travels to Palestine. Right. Uh, Der Angriff, that's the name of the newspaper. It's called The Attack. So basically, if you bought a subscription to this newspaper, they would give you this coin <laughs> as a gift. Yeah. Another one of these things that people don't want to talk about. They want to sort of shove down the rabbit hole and, and flush it away. And But this, this is important. We have to study history. In October 1953, the IDF led by Ariel Sharon attacked the village of Kibia in the West Bank and massacred 69 civilians, mostly women and children. The attack was condemned by the U.S. State Department, the U.N. Security Council. Sharon escaped judgment uh, for his crime in this world, at least. Now, backing up a little bit, it's kind of out of order. In June 1919, you have Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. So this covenant declared that the Arab areas that had been under Ottoman Empire and were now made mandates under European powers that these areas would eventually be made into independent nations and receive self-determination. So this happened to every other Arab uh, state under European mandate, except for Palestine. So this happened in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan. The Palestinians never received self-determination. Uh, Dr. Rashid Khalidi, he said, the Palestinians were denied what under Article 22 was allowed to every other Arab state under European mandate. So settler colonialism, right, is a type of conquest Okay, so inherent within European settler colonialism is the dispossession of the indigenous population. Okay, either through genocide, like what happened in America or Canada, or ethnic cleansing, forced expulsion. Ethnic cleansing is inherent in Zionism. So that's a quote from Khalidi himself. Ethnic cleansing is inherent in Zionism. Ethnic cleansing is part and parcel 
to European settler colonialism. Uh, and Herzl was no exception to this. I mean, he wanted to drive away the Arabs. Herzl was European to his core. The Balfour Declaration never even mentioned the Palestinians. And that was the point. They're not a people, according to the Zionists. Uh, Palestine was apparently a land without a people. Uh, what, what they mean by this, uh, what they meant by that was that a people uh, worth considering. Also, um, Dr. Benny Morris, right? Dr. Benny Morris, former professor at Ben-Gurion University in Israel. He's the author of several books. He said that the idea of transfer was inbuilt and inevitable in Zionism. So transfer is an Orwellian euphemism for expulsion, also known as ethnic cleansing, inbuilt and inevitable. And then, of course, the revered Oxford professor, uh, Avi Schlein, he said, quote, Zionism is racism. Now, when we look back at Islamic conquest, we see something different. OK, the indigenous were allowed to live in their homes and practice their religions and customs. The Zoroastrians survived in Iran. The Christians survive in North Africa. To this day, there are millions of them. The Jews thrived in Muslim countries for centuries. I mean, if they convert to Islam, they convert. If not, they pay a tribute tax if they can afford it, and they're guaranteed a protection from the Muslim polity. This is called vimi status. Genocide and ethnic cleansing are completely against the principles of Islamic conquest. We have this concept of ahlil kitab, okay, protected minority status. Were there injustices committed by certain Muslims? Yes, but these were in breach of the Sharia. By contrast, ethnic cleansing is inherent in Zionism, to quote Dr. Khalidi again. Ethnic cleansing is in the DNA of Zionism, as, as you commented last time we spoke, Paul. Khalidi also said that protected, minor, uh, protected minority status was completely contradictory to the aims of Zionism because the point of Zionism is not to have goyim. That's the whole point, not to have Gentiles. Now, I want to say something about the view of some, of some non-Muslims regarding the term Zionism, okay? Some Jews and Christians identify as Zionist, uh, but say that Israel is just not doing Zionism right, right? So it's similar to like what many Marxists say today. You know, they love Marxism, but they say, you know, Mao and Stalin, they didn't do it right, right? So with respect to Zionism, we can't forget that inherent within Zionism, inherent is the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous population. It's inherent. Zionism is a quintessential European settler colonial project. So essentially what these revisionist apologists want to do now is to give this term Zionism a makeover. You know, oh, Zionism is, is just about protecting Jews from violence. That's what they'll say. No, it's not. That is not Zionism. Zionism is evil. We can't allow these revisionists to redefine the term Zionism because by doing so, they will gradually remove the historical injustices associated with this term from human consciousness. If there's a movement that wants to protect Jews from violence by proposing a homeland for them that is done ethically, morally, nonviolently, then they should not call that Zionism because that is not Zionism. We all know what Zionism means and we cannot allow them to obfuscate, to muddy the waters. We should not accept this, uh, this Orwellian re-education. I mean, they should call their movement, you know, the Jewish homeland movement or, or something like that. Uh, and as Muslims, we don't have a problem with the Jewish homeland movement per se. We do have a problem, however, with Zionism, right? In 1947, the British just kind of threw up their hands and left Palestine. They left Palestine to the United Nations. It's a UN problem now, right? So the US, sorry, the UN partitioned Palestine. Now in 1947, the Jews constituted one third of the population, most of them newly arrived. 
yet they were offered 56% of Palestine. The Arabs, who were the majority and had lived there for generations, were offered 44%. So neither group found this favorable. Even though the Zionist uh, Israelis publicly agreed with the partition plan, they did not want an Arab majority within greater Israel. They wanted a Jewish ethnostate. An Arab majority totally contradicts this. So here's um, Balfour right. on the right. This is the partition here. Uh, David Ben-Gurion was quoted as stating, he's the first ever prime minister of Israel. He said, after the formation of a large army in the wake of the establishment of the state, we will abolish partition and expand to the whole of Palestine. Okay, so, so Israel's agreement was largely tactical. They always had it in their minds to expand and take the whole of historical Palestine from the river to the sea. Now, starting in March 1948, these Israeli militia, militia groups, these terrorist factions that were trained by the British, they put something into action called Plan Dalet, right? So Plan D, Dalet is, uh, means D, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet. And again, I highly recommend reading about this in Ilan Pape's book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. What did Plan Dalet do? It displaced 750,000 Palestinians. It forced them to leave Palestine uh, um, or forced them into Gaza, which of course became a huge open air concentration camp. There's a retired major general of the IDF. People can look, look this up. His name is Giora Island, E-I-L-A-N-D, Giora Island. Uh, he's also the former head of the Israeli National Security Council. In, in 2004, he called Gaza a concentration camp. So we have a top security official in the Israeli government refer to Gaza as a concentration camp. And this was before the blockade. Of course, Damon, uh, David Cameron, the former um, uh, prime minister of UK, called an open-air prison. According to Norman Finkelstein in 2003, the respected uh, professor at Hebrew University, Baruch Kimberling, described Gaza as, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. And now in 2024, actually, uh, according to Finkelstein, uh, Gaza is, quote, a death camp. And Finkelstein's parents were sent to two separate Nazi death camps. I mean, his father was at Auschwitz, so he knows a thing or two about concentration camps. So in Plan Dalit in 1948, I just want to say here because I'm still angry about this that uh, no leader in the West, be it the United States, uh, the European Union, or United Kingdom, has condemned uh, what's happening there. In fact, they've all, all of the aforementioned, have given diplomatic and political cover for the actions of the Zionists uh, on the people of Gaza. Um, and this is not hidden now. We can see it every day on Twitter and other social media platforms that the whole place is being flattened, just like Dresden was or other German yeah. cities during the Second World War. Uh, it's being flattened deliberately as, as a policy. And the West as a whole uh, has given political and diplomatic cover for this. Indeed, more than that, your country and the Britain and elsewhere are giving massive amounts of money and arms to do this. So the West is complicit not indirectly, but I would say directly with genocide as we speak. I mean, it's extremely, it's a world historical moment, a moment in history, in my view. Thank yeah, you. no, that's true. And yeah, we're going to get to what's happening right now. It's, um, uh, it's, it's very, very, it's maddening. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's unprecedented. It's, 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 it's almost like what I said last time. It's almost like the world is under a spell or something. Yes. We'll try to piece it together as to why that is. Um, so going back to the plan Dalit here in 1948, uh, in addition to 750,000 Palestinians being displaced or forced into Gaza, 500 villages were destroyed. And there were multiple reports of massacres, dozens upon dozens of them, 
indiscriminate killings of men, women, and children uh, at uh, Deir Yassin, at Haifa, at Jaffa. Uh, Israel declared itself a state on May 14, 1948. This is called the Nakba. And then the UN formally recognized Israel on May 11, 1949. Now, something else happened in 1954 that I think we should be aware of. We should not, again, we should not forget these moments in history. This is something that was thrown down the rabbit hole of history. Uh, it's called the Levan Affair, okay? And this was named after the former Israeli defense minister, Finhas Levan. So this was an attempted false flag operation, okay? Of course, the legendary uh, originator of the false flag operation was Nero, the, the fifth emperor of Rome, who died in 68. Nero wanted to build a grand palace for himself in Rome, uh, but could not get approval from the Senate. So he ordered some of his goons to basically start multiple fires around Rome. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, Nero blamed the Christians in the city for setting the fires. And this led to this horrible persecution of Roman Christians. Christians were thrown to animals. They remained into street lamps. Uh, and of course, according to some accounts, Nero stood on a tower overlooking the burning city, uh, playing his fiddle and singing a song about the fall of Troy, although this latter part is most likely a legend. So the Levon affair was an attempted false flag operation, codenamed Operation Susanna. You know, people should Google this before it's gone. Uh, it carried out, it was carried out by Israeli spies in Egypt in 1954. So these Zionist Israeli agents in Egypt planted bombs in busy civilian areas in Cairo and Alexandria, where Americans and the British would often visit, like movie theaters and libraries. The plan was to commit terrorism by killing civilians, especially Westerners, and then blame Egyptian Muslims in order to cause tensions between Egypt and the West. The plan fell apart. The Zionist spies were caught, and then they confessed. The Levon affair, really amazing. Uh, so there's a common talking point that Zionist apologists use to justify the crimes of Israel. And I want to briefly address that. So, 19, so after 1948, the Jewish population in Arab countries dropped dramatically. Okay, some 800,000 Jewish Arabs, Mizrahi Jews, left the Arab world. And this is true, okay? The Zionist claim is that all of these Jews were ethnically cleansed from these countries, okay? And here I recommend the scholarship of Dr. Avi Shlaim. So Dr. Shlaim is an Iraqi-born Jew who uh, migrated to Israel when he was a child. Uh, he's a scholar of Mizrahi Jewish history and professor emeritus at Oxford. Now, according to Shlaim, the number one reason why there was such a massive exodus of Jews from the Arab world was the rise of nationalism. So first, Jewish nationalism, that is to say Zionism, the creation of the state of Israel, and then Arab nationalism. So a large percentage of Arab Jews left the Arab world because they had a desire to live in Israel. They desired to make Aliyah. So unlike what the Palestinians suffered during Plan Dalet, a forced expulsion, a large percentage of Arab Jews, hundreds of uh, thousands of them, uh, left voluntarily to live in Israel. And, and the, it actually is on the public record that Mossad itself, is, the Israeli intelligence agency, actually encouraged, for example, Jews yeah. living in Egypt to uh, emigrate to Israel. So the, yeah. the, the, there was an actual operation by the Israeli state as well to get Jews into Israel, and Mossad played a key role in that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that yeah, and I'll mention that as well. So 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 that was one consequence of Jewish nationalism. So voluntary aliyah to Israel by Arab Jews. Another consequence of of Jewish nationalism was a strong Arab nationalism. And it's uh, it's true that many Arab Jews suffered discrimination, injustice, and violence in Arab majority countries during this period, the late '40s and '50s. This is true. Uh, we have to own it. Uh, a major backlash of the creation of Israel was that it cast dispersions upon the Arab Jews living in Arab countries. And this caused much resentment between the two communities. 
but this was no excuse for violence against innocent Arab Jews. So I'm not some apologist for these Arab countries. I condemn the unjust policies and violence committed against Jewish communities in the Muslim world. Such treatment of Jews was contrary to the Sharia and contrary to the historical treatment of Jews in the Muslim world. Uh, but the reason why we don't hear Zionists condemning Plan Dalet is because, as we said, indigenous ethnic cleansing of Palestinians was inherent, inbuilt, and inevitable in Zionism. Zionists will always justify violence against the indigenous. We condemn violence against Jews. They justify violence against Palestinians. Now, Shlaim also said that when he was a child in Iraq, okay, before Israel, the common sentiment among Iraqi Jews was that Iraq was their home, that the Iraqi Muslims and, and Iraqi Jews viewed each other as friends and neighbors for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, but when he went to Israel with his family in 1950, he said that the Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, the ones in charge of Israel, viewed the Mizrahi Jews as inferior, that anything Arab was seen as backward and primitive. Uh, this is something that he never experienced in Iraq from Muslims. Uh, Dr. Uh, Shaul uh, Magid at Dartmouth also talks about this, uh, that there was a type of uh, systematic, what he calls de-Arabization of Mizrahi Jews in Israel by elitist Ashkenazim, right? And a lot of people don't know this, but in 1971, uh, a group of Mizrahi Jews in Israel formed an organization called the Israeli Black Panthers, right? Uh, it's because there was systemic discrimination in Israel against Mizrahi Jews by European Jews, by Ashkenazim Jews. Now, there is one more important thing that Schleim says that we need to know. Uh, in 1950 and 1951, five bombings occurred in Iraq, okay? According to Schleim, overwhelming evidence suggests that at least three of these bombings were committed by Zionist agents operating in Iraq. Okay, the purpose was to create sympathy for Arab Jews and to accelerate immigration to Israel, as you said. So Israel had a problem of population. They needed more and more Jews to come to Israel. And, and Schleim says that this is not a one-off. I mean, to quote him exactly, he said, it was part of a pattern of false flag operations, end quote. And he cites the Levant affair in Egypt. And so God only knows what was happening in Morocco and Tunisia and Libya, etc. You know, Schleim also called this cruel Zionism. Why? Because the Zionists, they helped turn the Iraqi and Egyptian societies against their own Jewish populations. They created uh, hostile conditions for Jews in these countries, Jews who were innocent and had, and had no interest in Zionism. So much of the Jewish exodus from Muslim countries during the 1950s was due to hostile conditions created in those countries by Zionist terrorists committing false flag operations. This is just a fact. Uh, yeah, I think I want to say in the West, we find it very well, often uh, the idea of conspiracy theories is mocked and ridiculed. Only people who are stupid or gullible or low intelligence believe in conspiracy theories. And I think there's a political motive behind people actually uh, discrediting this, because yeah. what you have said is actually based on facts which are checkable in the public domain, even though these are actually conspiracies in the any sense of the term, I think. Uh, and, and they are part of the historical record and are known to be true. Um, the very idea of a conspiracy is mocked in the West. But I, I think there's a political reason why, in other words, a conspiracy, funnily enough, mm -hmm. why they are mocked, just so that we're not actually aware of what's going on around us in the world. So the very idea is discredited. But it's true. What you say is based on fact. 
and it can be checked, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people don't want to be called a conspiracy theorist because it's one of these these thought stoppers, right? If you're yeah. called a conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, they want you to stop thinking. No, we should we should always think. We should always do research. Don't let people intimidate us. Yeah, and and, and check the facts. Go back into the historical record and see if, if I'm making this up. If if this is a uh, you know some sort of fairy tale or if this is actually what happened. Indeed, yeah. no, it is definitely. Yeah, but people should check yeah. what you're saying. But it is fact. I mean, I, I'm, I was familiar with these things. They're definitely yeah. Familiar. Now, now, moving ahead to the 1967 war, so, so Israel, uh, through, quote, a preemptive strike, uh, took control of the West Bank, Gaza, the old city of Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. So Khalidi calls this a surprise attack, actually. Israel gave back part of the Golan Heights and the Sinai, but continued to occupy Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. So according to international law, it is illegal to acquire territory by war. So the UN passed Resolution 242 in 1967, calling for Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories immediately. That was 56 years ago, 57 years ago. Israel has yet to comply. Religious Zionists call, uh, like to call this victory a divine miracle, right? So they have this sort of uh, this, uh, this uh, legendary um, romantic sort of way of telling the story in the midst of all of these hostile uh, Goliathine Arabs. Uh, the tiny, scrappy underdog nation of Davidic Israel miraculously defeated his enemies. I mean, this is total propaganda. The truth is the Israeli military was infinitely superior uh, to all her Arab neighbors uh, put together. Uh, Israel was actually Goliath. Uh, and this is amazing here. In, in the midst of the 1967 war, on June 8th, 1967, Israel attacked the USS Liberty. Again, most people don't know about this. This is absolutely factual. Uh, what was the USS Liberty, an unarmed American naval ship in international waters flying the American flag. It was a coordinated attack from the air and sea. The Liberty was clearly identified by Israeli pilots as being American. There's no doubt about this. It's not mistaken identity. There are recordings, despite clearly identifying the ship as American by reading out the ship's hull number and seeing the American flag, Israeli pilots fired at the ship from below and Israeli missile boats fired torpedoes from below. Uh, sorry, uh, fired, um, uh, um, they fired from, from the ship from above and Israeli missile boats filed torpedoes from below. So 34 American sailors were killed. Another 174 uh, were injured. So that's, that's more than two thirds of the total number of sailors. And here's a, an image of the USS Liberty. So the American government, they tried to cover this up. They tried to hide this event from the press and from the American public. And to this day, to this very day, survivors and relatives of survivors meet once a year to read the names of the deceased and try to understand why their greatest ally in the Middle East intentionally and callously attacked them. You know, the, the most likely reason is that the USS Liberty was a spy ship and as a spy ship, it was listening in on Israel's war plans. Uh, so even though America was their ally, Israel didn't like the fact that America was listening in on their plans, I guess. So they tried to massacre everyone on the ship. Very strange. Throughout the 70s and 80s, um, Israel continued to build settlements and occupy territories. In September 1982, Defense Minister Ariel Sharon ordered the massacre of about uh, 3,000 Palestinian refugees and Lebanese civilians at the refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, there was torture, mutilation, there was rape over three days. The UN called this, quote, an act of genocide. The Israeli military, along with their ally, an extreme right-wing Christian militia group called the Falange, were held responsible. Uh, Sharon resigned, but then became uh, the prime minister nine years later. So it's very strange how that happens. 
Now, according to Khalidi, in the 1980s, the PLO shifted two things, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They shifted their aim and their means, as he puts it. Okay, So they shifted their aim, that is their goal, from one Palestinian state, from the river to the sea, with Arabs and Jews living equally, to two states, Israel and Palestine, Palestine along the June 1967 borders, with East Jerusalem as the capital of the Palestinian state. So the Palestinian Authority made this major concession. They also shifted their means from armed struggle to peaceful negotiations. So in 1988, the PLO openly accepted the terms of UN Resolution 242, passed in 1967, which would give the Palestinians a state along the, 67, uh, the June 67 borders and East Jerusalem as their capital. Now, during this time in the late 80s, Hamas also emerges, okay? And the aim and means of Hamas was different than the PLO. So the aim of Hamas initially, at least, was the whole of Palestine, one Palestinian state, and their means was armed struggle or armed resistance. And, and Israel, by the way, just as a point of fact, helped create Hamas and funded Hamas. Israel wanted Hamas to oppose the more secular PLO. They wanted the, to create internal turmoil among the Palestinians, to play them against each other. Divide you know, and rule, yeah. Divide and conquer. They learned from the British so many years ago. So, yeah. so Israel has, uh, has never wanted a two-state solution. And so Israel didn't like uh, the PLO moving in that direction. So Israel funded Hamas for 20 years and then fought them for the next 20 years. Now, Ron Paul, an American congressman, he once said on the floor of the House, quote, Hamas was encouraged and really started by Israel because they wanted Hamas to counteract Yasser Arafat, end quote. Uh, uh, Avner Cohen, a former Israeli government advisor, he said, quote, Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation, end quote. So who suffers in all of this? Innocent people, civilians from both sides. Meanwhile, Israel uses the, the presence of Hamas as a pretext to commit atrocities in Palestine. Hamas has become this perennial boogeyman that, that Israel can just shoehorn into their narratives and presto, ethnic cleansing, genocide, it's all good. In 1993, the famous uh, Oslo Accords were held. Now here, Zionist apologists always say, oh, the Palestinians were offered a state in 1993 during the Oslo Accords, and yet they rejected it, right? Uh, the Oslo Accords were a sham, and I'll tell you why. The stated goal of the Accords was to create an autonomous Palestinian state where the Palestinians had total self-determination, but this was a sham. According to the Oslo Accords, the occupied West Bank would be turned into three zones, Zone A, Zone B, and Zone C. Zone A would be given to the Palestinians. Uh, the Palestinians would have civil and secure, security control over Zone A. Zone A was about 18% of the West Bank. Uh, zone B would be 22% uh, of the West Bank. In Zone B, the Palestinians would have civil control, but Israel would control the security. Now, in both Zone A and B, Israel could still conduct their raids whenever they wanted. So even in Zone A, where the Palestinians were in so-called full control, this control could be overridden whenever Israel wanted. And then Zone C was 60% of the West Bank, and Zone C would be under full Israeli control. So in reality, all three zones would be under Israeli control. So this was the so-called autonomous Palestinian state. This was where the Palestinians would have so-called self-determination. No, this was a sham. This was a con job. You know, what about the Palestinian refugees? Did they have the right of return? What about East Jerusalem? Interestingly, in the 30 years since the Oslo meetings, 
the number of Israeli settlers in the West Bank went from 100,000 in 1993 to about half a million today. So in 30 years, it tripled. And now they have assault rifles, the settlers. And the Palestinian territories continue to this day to be under occupation and continue to shrink. And Palestinians uh, continue to live as second-class citizens in their own country. And, and second-class is a big understatement. In the occupied territories of Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank, it's nothing short of apartheid. Apartheid, according to Beth Selim, which is an Israeli human rights organization, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, it's apartheid, according to Nelson Mandela, uh, Desmond Tutu, Jimmy Carter, Palestinians have no rights in the occupied territories. They're treated like animals. They're called animals, all right? And just a few weeks ago, the IDF were passing out assault rifles to Israeli settlers in the West Bank like candy. Now, on November 8th, 1995, the Israeli prime minister who signed the first round of the Oslo Accords, Yitzhak Rabin, he was assassinated by an Israeli terrorist and Jewish radical named Yigal Amir. Okay. Now, Amir justified his actions religiously. He appealed to something called Dean Rodef, the law of the pursuer. And, and I'll tell you why I'm mentioning this in a minute, inshallah. So this is a law mentioned in Sanhedrin 73a in the Talmud, but it's based upon Leviticus 19.16. It says, do not stand idly by the blood of your brother. In other words, if you see a person pursuing to kill another person, you're responsible to put yourself in harm's way and prevent the pursuer from committing murder. And if necessary, you may have to kill the pursuer, the rodef. Uh, you must intervene to save a life, even if it means taking a life. You cannot stand idly by. So the rabbis mentioned the story of Moses, peace be upon him, to demonstrate this, right? So he intervened when the Egyptian taskmaster was beating right. up the Hebrew slave. Moses intervened and ended up killing the Egyptian, but the killing was justified uh, because the rodef, the Egyptian, would have killed the slave. So in Amir's mind, Yiksaf Rabin was endangering Jewish lives by recognizing a so-called Palestinian state. So his defense in court was that Rabin was a rodef. So his, his defense was rejected. So there are Jewish extremists who consider it a murderable offense if some Israeli officials even consider working with the Palestinians. Interestingly, uh, Zionist Orthodox Jewish professor Jeffrey Alderman, he argued that since the Gazans voted Hamas in, Every Gazan is a Rodef and must be killed because they held an election. The same logic, apparently, as Bin Laden, every American is fair game. The difference is 70% uh, of Gazans are either refugees or children of refugees who held an election while living inside the world's largest concentration camp, and 50% of Gazans are children who never voted for anyone. Uh, according to uh, influential Zionist Orthodox Rabbi Yosef Misrahi, all Palestinian children are rodfim because when they get older, they're going to be terrorists anyway. So Israel might as well kill them now. That's his logic. And then you have this absolute psychopath, Rabbi Manus Friedman, who says very similar things. He's highly celebrated in the Jewish community. He has over 400,000 followers on his YouTube channel. He's very popular. He's the dean of an institute of Jewish studies, Manus Friedman. Total psychopath. Destroy their holy sites. Kill their women and children. There are no civilians this type of thing. And then he claims to have knowledge. <laughs> he claims to have knowledge of Islam. And he says, oh, in Islam, Moses is the first prophet, is what he says. I'll just mention this quickly. This is not on the slide, but there was also the so-called Camp David summit, right, in 2000, right? Bill Clinton, Ehud Barak, Yasser Arafat. Again, a sham, you know, a horse and pony show. No Palestinian autonomy, no Palestinian self-determination. Hillary, Hillary Clinton is, of course, making her rounds now. 
The Palestinians were offered a state in 1947, in 1993, in 2000. The Palestinians are constantly rejecting a two-state solution. This is a major Zionist talking point. Okay, according to Norman Finkelstein, every single year for decades, the UN votes on a general assembly resolution. It's called the peaceful settlement of the question of Palestine. The peaceful settlement of the question of Palestine. He always says, just Google it, right? This resolution would give the Palestinians a state on the June 1967 borders, and the conditions would be based upon international law, not Israeli law. Every year, the whole world votes in favor, including Palestine, and only America, Israel, and a few small island nations vote against it. So Israel does not want a two-state solution. Hmm. Israel. Recently, the Israeli ambassador to the UK yeah. uh, said clearly that Israel does not want a two-state solution. She said, absolutely not. That's an exact quote. Yeah. Netanyahu himself openly said that he is proud that he prevented a Palestinian state. Mark Regev, senior advisor to Netanyahu, recently reminded us in an interview with Piers Morgan that in 1993, even Rabin, Yitzhak Rabin, said that the Palestinians should not be given full authority over their own state. That Rabin famously said, less than a state, right? So, so even a more lefty politician like Rabin said no. I mean, we already knew this, but Regev reminded us recently uh, so they all admit this. Israel does not want a two-state solution. They want, so what's the alternative? What are the remaining options, apartheid or genocide? On February 25th, 1994, an Israeli terrorist and Jewish radical named Baruch Goldstein massacred 29 Palestinians who were worshiping at Masjid Ibrahim in uh, Hebron, in Al-Khalil, in the occupied West Bank. This happened at Salat al-Fajr during Ramadan. 29 adults and children were murdered and another 130 injured. This is called the Cave of the Patriarchs Massacre. Goldstein was born in Brooklyn. He moved to Israel in 1983 after becoming radicalized. He was a member of a radical Jewish movement called the Kach Party. Okay, it was founded in 1971 by Rabbi Meir Kahana. Okay, so this party was banned in Israel in 1994 and declared a terrorist organization. Goldstein uh, was a student of Kahana. Kahana wrote a famous book called They Must Go, he also coined the phrase never again. So Kahana exploited the Holocaust as an excuse to advocate essentially for another Holocaust. Kahana was assassinated in 1990. Now the majority of Israelis today condemn Goldstein for being the terrorist that he was, but a minority of Jewish radicals praise him. They continue to make annual pilgrimages to his gravesite to this day. Uh, someone who killed prostrating children. The eulogy on his tomb reads the following. The revered Dr. Baruch Kapel Goldstein, son of Israel, he gave his soul for the sake of the people of Israel, the Torah and the land. His hands are clean and his heart good, end quote. Wow. So essentially Goldstein was a suicide bomber, right, but with an automatic weapon. I mean, they knew that, he would, that they would kill him on the spot. Uh, disturbingly, Goldstein's ideology has recently made a major comeback. So Kahanism is gaining popularity right now in so-called Israel. There is a far-right party in Israel called Otsma Yehudit. It means Jewish power. Okay, In 2022, the leader of this party was Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is literally a convicted terrorist. And he became the Minister of National Security under Netanyahu. Right so now, the Minister of National Security in the Israeli government today yes. is a member of this party, uh, which follows the traditions of this terrorist. Extraordinary. Yes, yeah, he's a devoted Kahanist. And, and get this, Ben Gavir used to have a picture of Baruch Goldstein hanging in his living room, mm. right? This is confirmed, the man who committed the Cave of the Patriarchs massacre. Yeah. 
So Goldstein is his hero. So Goldstein's ideology is now the mainstream in the Israeli government. So these people, they want to incite a religious war, a religious holocaust of Arabs in Palestine. And here's something alarming. I just learned this, actually. Throughout 2023, large groups of religious Jewish settlers regularly make made trips to the Haram Sharif, the so-called Temple Mount, to perform collective Jewish prayers on the platform. Okay, On the day before October 7th, over 1,000 settlers gathered in the southeast corner of the Temple Mount and prayed as a group. So this is a major provocation. So there is great fear among the Palestinians that one of these settlers will do what Goldstein did inside Masjid al-Aqsa. God forbid, la qadr Allah. These are kahanists, right? But how did these kahanists justify these actions religiously, like scripturally? I mean, it's one thing to say that Jews can end their exile and return to the Holy Land and pray on the Temple Mount. Uh, it's another to say that they can kill with impunity the Arabs that are there. And I'll come back to this. Let's just continue here with the with the history. In 2006, free and fair elections were held in Gaza and Hamas won. Now, according to Khalidi, Hamas's platform was much more moderate, at least what they were saying at the time. And Hamas agreed to a coalition government with Fatah, which is the other large faction of the PLO. The president is Mahmoud Abbas. So this would have authorized Hamas to negotiate with Israel on the basis of a two-state solution. Israel, U.S., and U.K. refused to negotiate, right? It's all Israel in reality. I mean, the U.S. and U.K. just kind of obey Israel uh, like good dogs. Uh, why did Israel refuse? Uh, because, again, Israel does not want a two-state solution. Israel then imposed an illegal and satanic uh, blockade on Gaza, uh, and here we are. So here's uh, Goldstein, right, in his grave. All oh, right. Gosh. And then here's... Uh, Mayor uh, Kahana, right, the founder of the Koch Party, the Kahana's Party, uh, teacher of Burr Goldstein, coined the phrase never again, wrote, they must go. And of course, here's Ben Gavir, current minister of national security under Netanyahu and a devoted Kahanist, convicted terrorist, right, right behind him, uh, Utsma Yehudit, Jewish power. Now, a question we get all the time is, do you condemn Hamas, Right. So we should ask the person asking us this, uh, do you condemn Israel? If they say no, ask them why they don't condemn a nation that commits a textbook case of genocide. According to the definition of genocide offered by the UN, we'll get to that. If they say Israel is just defending itself, we can say, well, why can't Hamas defend itself? They'll say Hamas kills civilians. So does Israel on a much more massive scale. So here's the answer. I condemn the killing of civilians period. I don't care who does it. It's never justified. Now, on October 7th, October 7th was not an isolated event. It didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, I think we can certainly understand why Hamas did what they did, but don't condemn, sorry, but don't condone their actions of killing civilians. We certainly condemn it. Understanding is not condoning, okay? So white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison understood why Nat Turner did what he did during the slave revolt in 1831, but he did not condone it. So what do people expect? I mean, young, pe young men born in a concentration camp or raised most of their lives in a concentration camp, you expect them to you know, lie down and die? Young men who have lost their family and friends to Israel's policy of mowing the lawn every few years, young men who are you know, starving, can't find work, drink polluted water, feel constantly humiliated, what do you expect? You can't tread on human beings like this and expect no response. And these are human beings. They're not animals. 
In 2008 and 9, Operation Cast Lead. Uh, 2012, Operation Pillar of Defense. 2014, Operation Protective Edge. Uh, these were high-tech high massacres uh, in Gaza committed by the IDF. Israel calls these mowing the lawn. In hundreds, in some cases, thousands of civilians killed, mostly women and children. I mean, what do you expect? In fact, compared to Israel, Hamas has shown incredible restraint when you really think about it. You know, people say, why can't the Palestinians just practice peaceful resistance like Gandhi, right? So I encourage people uh, to look up the 2018-2019 Gaza border protests, okay? These were peaceful demonstrations led by Gazans at the border wall for 18 months. This is also called the Great March of Return. The IDF murdered hundreds of unarmed Palestinians peacefully protesting. They targeted journalists, women, children, the disabled, okay? On May 14th, 2018, the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel, Israeli snipers killed 62 Palestinians in one day, unarmed Palestinians. These were peaceful protesters. So these murders, this massacre in reality, was condemned by the UN, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Bet Salem, Israel doesn't care. Israel's response to peaceful protest is murder. Of course, what did JFK say in 1962? Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. The Palestinians throughout their history have shown incredible forbearance. They are a forbearing people. Now, at this point, I want to turn to the topic of Christian Zionism. And again, there will be a, a bit of repetition from our last uh, podcast. Um, so again, these two words, Christian Zionist, they should never be in opposition to each other. Right? This is, this is oxymoronic. It's jumbo shrimp. It's a four-sided triangle. Now, first of all, we know that Theodore Herzl himself met with Pope Pius X in 1904 and asked for the Pope's support for Zionism. And the Pope said, absolutely not. That was in, 2000, that was in 1904. So part and parcel to the Zionist project from a religious from a Jewish religious standpoint, is the construction of the third temple on the so-called Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Of course, the first temple was built by Solomon in 1000 BCE, was destroyed by Babylonians in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple was built uh, around 550, sorry, 515 BCE and destroyed uh, in 70 by the Romans under General Titus. And now Jewish Zionists want to build a third temple. Now, traditionally, the Jews for the last 2000 years have believed that when the Messiah comes, he will build uh, the third temple, right? The Beit HaMikdash, Beit HaMakdash. Uh, the difference between the Zionist Orthodox and the Haredi Orthodox is that the Zionists want to take the initial steps to hasten the coming of the Messiah, which includes seizing the land and purifying the land, uh, as we said. The Haredi believe that they must wait patiently for the Messiah before doing anything. Okay, so the construction of the third temple is mainstream traditional Judaism. Uh, the difference is the circumstance under which the temple will be rebuilt. Um, so th there was a story of um, a, a rabbi. He actually lived, he was a Zionist. He lived in Israel. And then after a few years, he realized that, you know, we're, we're oppressing these people in, in a major way. Uh, and then he turned anti-Zionist. And the thought that came to him was that, you know, that David has become Goliath, that, that any Israel has become the Pharaoh, right? Uh, you know, at least... <laughs> At least the original Pharaoh did not kill the women and girls, uh, right? This new Pharaoh slaughters indiscriminately. So if Israel is a new Pharaoh, uh, then Christian Zionists are the new uh, Korah and Haman, Karun and Haman. That is to say the money and military that supports the Pharaoh. Now, one of the largest and most influential Christian Zionist organizations uh, in the world is called KUFI, uh, Christians United for Israel. 
led by a loudmouth preacher from Texas named John Hagee. Why is it blasphemous, right? Why is Kufi Kufr? Well, before I get to that, here's an interesting piece of trivia. Uh, up until a few years ago, the executive director of Kufi was a man named David Brog, who was the cousin of former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Huh. Very interesting. The executive director of Christians United for Israel was Jewish, the cousin of the Israeli Prime Minister. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So in the New Testament, Jesus himself, of course, is the new temple. Now, I don't believe this. I don't believe that Isa is the new temple, but this is what the New Testament teaches. This is what Christians are supposed to believe given their canon of scripture. And of course there are problems with their canon, no doubt. But I want the audience to see what I'm doing here. Mm. I'm taking the Christian scriptures as they are and examining them vis-a-vis -vis Zionism because that the Christian scriptures, that's their hujja, that's their proof text. So the Quran says, bring your book, bring your scripture if you speak the truth, right? D does Zionism hold up to scrutiny when we examine the plain and obvious meanings of the Christian scriptures as they are? If not, then Christians must abandon their Zionism if they want to remain true to their scriptures. So uh, the Gospel of John, of course, begins with the prologue, the hymn to the Logos, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And I quote the original languages here because this is the key to understanding. I mean, we say that Arabic is miftahul ulum, that Arabic is the key to the sciences. When, when sacred language is lost, the integrity of the religion weakens. Okay, T today there are Christian pastors who don't know a lick of, of Greek or Hebrew or Latin. So, so that's that's a big problem, right? Uh, so John 1, kai halagas sarks agenata kai eskenosen and homin. So literally, the word became flesh and tented himself, tabernacled himself. I like that. I, I put the translation tabernacle because it really brings out the, the Jewish uh, uh, context right. very powerfully. Yeah. I like, yeah. That is literally what it says. And, and yeah. you know, and dwelt among, you would never get that from an English translation. I mean, you miss so much of what's being said there. In other words, what the author is saying here is that Jesus is the new temple, the new Mishkan that houses the Shekhinah, the presence of God, right? Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. It took 46 years to build this temple. How are we going to raise it up in three days? And then John says, but he spoke of the temple of his body. So this is very, very clear that Jesus is the new temple. Um, and so for Christians to support the construction of a, of a third temple in Jerusalem is essentially to uh, deny the New Testament Jesus, because Jesus replaces the temple according to the New Testament. The New Testament Jesus never utters a single word about a third temple. No, but he, he just, he's just talking great de detail, like in Mark 13, of the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, right. AD 17, 70 rather. It's there in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And that this, is, this is a prophecy that it will be destroyed by the Romans. So I mean, it doesn't condemn it. You know, th th this is the end of the temple. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. He emphatically <laughs> predicts the destruction of the yeah. second temple. Never talks about the third temple. So, so now then we have Zionist Jews rebelling against God's decree of exile. And we have Zionist Christians rebelling against Jesus's pronouncement that he is the new temple. I actually call this the double Kufr theology of Judeo-Christian Zionism. Ooh. For Jews to end the exile and break the three oaths is Kufr according to traditional Judaism. That's one Kufr. That's one disbelief. For Christians to support the construction of the third temple when Jesus is the new temple is kufr according to traditional Christianity, double kufr uh, theology. And of wow. course, here's, here's a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
we looked at this last time as well. Christ is the true temple of God, the place where his glory dwells. This is what every Christian used to believe. Of course, here is Pastor John Hagee, founder and chairman of Kufi. I mean, you say he's loud mouth, but if you listen to him on YouTube, and I have, he really is loud mouth. Actually, he's yeah. he really is a, a very outspoken guy, and he has a sort of bewitching charisma. I think that he uh, sp spreads over his followers. Actually, uh, he yeah, I mean, he's, he's a master communicator. I mean, the yeah. way that he casts a spell over his audience. Yes, you know, it's it's. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, you can get a degree in homiletics, right? The art of preaching. Yes. Even if there's very little substance of what someone's saying, the way that they say it yeah, is quite yeah, enticing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Christian Zionism is a betrayal of the New Testament Jesus. So Zionism is a betrayal of the Old, Tem Old Testament teaching, and Zionism is a betrayal of the New Testament te teaching. And we mentioned this last time as well, that in, in John's Gospel, the author of the Gospel of John, he moved the, the day of the crucifixion up one day uh, to the day of the preparation of the Passover. Why? Because this is when the lambs of the temple were being slaughtered. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Roman centurion impaling the crucified Johannine Jesus and blood and water gushed forth from his side. And we said, well, what was the significance of that? Well, at that very moment, the lambs were being slaughtered uh, for the Passover in the temple and the priest would open a side gate and it would wash the blood out with water. Blood and water would gush forth from the side of the temple. So we see what John is doing in his gospel. He is depicting Jesus as both sacrificial lamb and temple. Jesus is the new temple. Again, I don't agree with this Christology, okay? However, if Christians would just follow these teachings found in their own books, they would not, they would not have any reason to morally, uh, theologically, financially, or militarily support the modern state of Israel. And of course, the world would be a much better place. And then we can talk theology and Christology and the historical and textual problems of the New Testament canon. That's another conversation. Christian Zionism is utter blasphemy, according to the New Testament. So this is what we have to help our Christian friends and neighbors and possibly family members uh, to realize. So here's another one here, John, First John 2.22, right? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And then it says, Hutas est in ha antichristos. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is the Antichrist. Again, just to reiterate, this is the New Testament. Not my opinion, not the Quran, not the Hadith. This is a New Testament, okay? Um, there's this well-known Palestinian uh, Christian pastor and professor living in Bethlehem in the occupied West Bank. His name is Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac. Yeah. And he's quoted as saying, they, and by they he means Christian Zionists, the Christian Zionists have turned the Injil, the good news, into our nightmare. Huh. I wonder how many, I wonder if Christian Zionists know that every morning at 3.30 in the morning, a Palestinian Muslim unlocks the door of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, right? His name is Adib Jude. Uh, the key has been in his family for hundreds of years. Centuries ago, the Christians entrusted a Muslim family with the keys to the holiest site in all of Christianity because they knew that the Muslims would be just with them. I, I wonder mm. how many Christian Zionists actually know that. Mm. Okay, according to the clear teachings of the New Testament, the Jews are no longer the chosen people exclusively. Okay, the New Testament advances replacement theology, right? Covenantal supersessionism. So supersessionism is this idea that the Christian church has superseded the nation of Israel as God's covenant people, okay? Of course, this is not a total replacement because Jews can still believe in Jesus and must believe in Jesus if they want to remain God's people. That's traditional Christianity. 
Now, Christian Zionists love to quote this verse, Genesis 12, 3. Okay, this is their, you know, we say bread and butter. I don't know if you use that expression. In, in oh, we do. You do. I think it came from the UK first, actually, and then you borrowed it oh. in America. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense, yeah. 12, 3. So this is where God says to Abraham, I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. So Christian Zionists take this to mean that they must bless Abraham and his chosen seed, the Israelites. Therefore, if they don't bless and support the modern state of Israel, then God won't bless them. So this is what they say. Where are they getting this from? A blasphemy called dispensationalism. This is not biblical. They were hoodwinked. And the history is fascinating, and we'll get into it in a minute, inshallah. Mm. Of course, Paul of Tarsus was a supersessionist to his very core, right? So listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3.16 about God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And Christians, again, are supposed to believe the New Testament writers, not, you know, John Hagee or John Nelson Darby or C.I. Schofield. So this is what Paul says. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, right? And of course, the Christian Zionists will say, yes, of course, amen. But Paul continues. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So that's Galatians 3.16. In other words, according to Paul, God in Genesis was only referring to Jesus Christ as being Abraham's seed. Only Jesus and the Christians who believe in him are blessed, not the disbelieving Israelites, and certainly not the modern genocidal blasphemous state of Israel. Not Tel Aviv that hosts the largest pride parade in the world, a hundred miles away from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And who spitefully used the rainbow as a symbol of their de degeneracy and rebellion. Of course, the rainbow was the sign of the covenant that God made with humanity in Genesis chapter 9. Not that Israel. So according to Paul, God in Genesis was only referring to Jesus and the Christians who believe in him. This is New Testament. But Paul's not finished. He goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's Galatians 3, 28, 29. This is called a conditional statement. If you look in the Greek, it says, A de humes Christu. A, epsilon iota, is a conditional particle in Greek. It's very clear this is a conditional particle. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What does it mean to belong to Christ? It means to believe in Jesus. It's very clear what Paul is saying. So Christians are the new chosen people, according to the New Testament. You're only chosen and blessed if you believe in Jesus. Uh, there's another one here. It's not on the slide here, but 1 Peter 2.9. I, I saw this later. So this is, you know, apparently Peter talking to Christians, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So he's talking to the Christians. Uh, and here, here at 1 Thessalonians 2.14 and 15, uh, Paul is writing to his Christian congregation in, in Thessalonica. This was in the mid-50s, in the first century. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of, of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and plead, displeased God and oppose all men. So that is Paul of Tarsus. This is not the Quran. It's not the Hadith. I'm sure that Christian apologists can defend these things. But why is it that we never hear these defenses? We are always on the defensive. You know, explain the verse of the sword, explain the so-called wife-beating verse, explain polygamy, explain uh, the jizya, explain jihad, explain this, explain that. We're always on the back foot. So I think we need to rethink our strategic engagement with the public discourse. 
I mean, I've been answering the jihad question for over 20 years. If people don't know what jihad is by now, then God help them, right? Uh, so now we have a few questions, right? It's time for us to ask a few questions. Romans uh, 6 and Hebrews 10, Paul says that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was the be-all, end-all sacrifice. So Jesus is the ultimate temple, the ultimate high priest, and the ultimate sacrifice. This is New Testament Christianity. Yet Christian Zionists fully support the third temple where both the priests and sin sacrifices will return one day, according to Jewish messianism. How can the followers of the New Testament support this and call themselves Bible-believing Christians? They can't. Christian Zionism is indefensible from a biblical perspective. So we need to ask a Christian Zionist, are the Jews who wrote the Talmud still chosen and beloved by God? Are the Jews that wrote the Talmud still the apple of God's eye who cursed and slandered Jesus and his mother in the Talmud? And I might have referenced this last time as well, a book by Peter Schaefer, published by Princeton University, Jesus and the Talmud, where we're told what the Talmud says about Jesus and Mary. Of course, we have this um, famous... Uh, can I just, can I just in interrupt here? I know it's very rude, but... Uh... This is the book. I do actually recommend it quite strongly. Jesus in the Town by Peter Schaefer that you're uh, recommending. It's an excellent book, highly, um, some excellent um, critical reviews on the back. Uh, scattered throughout the town with the founding document of rabbinic Judaism. We find quite a few references to Jesus and they are not flattering. Um, and this matters obviously for a bunch of reasons, but your point yeah. particularly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I know that, you know, Ben Shapiro was, was on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. Um, and Joe Rogan said, so you believe that Jesus was just a prophet or something? And he, and he said, no, he was just a Jewish guy who tried to start a rebellion against the Romans and was killed for his trouble. That's and right. when he said that, a lot of Muslims and Christians were offended. I mean, it's offensive. Jesus was just another failed sort of insurrectionist who died a criminal's death. But let me tell you this, what Shapiro yeah, said was the G-rated version of what his Talmud says about Jesus. However, j just for the sake of balancing my comments and being a bit fair here, um, and I'm not defending the Talmud, obviously, but we have to put its comments about Jesus into context. So the mm -hmm. rabbis who wrote these things were reacting to the New Testament Jesus, okay, as well as the Jesus of Christian faith, not the historical Jesus of Nazareth, mm -hmm. not the real Isa Islam. So this is really important. The New Testament Jesus, the Jesus of Christian faith claimed to be God. So this is absolute blasphemy from a Jewish perspective. It is the height of kufur. Numbers 23, 19. I always try to quote this at every podcast we do, Paul. God is not a man that he should lie. Right? The New Testament Jesus, the Christian Jesus, committed blasphemy. So the Talmudic rabbis felt compelled to offer a sharp critique, but rather than using more academic and historical arguments, they opted for extremely depraved ad hominem uh, attacks. So, so coven covenantal supersessionism was also the teachings of Christians throughout the centuries. John Chrysostom, Augustine of Hippo, Yes, John Calvin, Martin Luther, the early church fathers from the East and the West, all, as well as pioneers of the Protestant Reformation, all were advocates of replacement theology to a certain extent. Martin Luther, the, the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote, he wrote a treatise uh, called On the Jews and Their Lies. And mm -hmm. you will be shocked to your core what he says about the Jews. You won't believe your eyes. Mm -hmm. I mean, Luther lost his mind. Uh, dis despite Luther being the main force of the Protestant movement, most Protestants are absolutely right to reject his hateful anti-Jewish rants. I and mean, he was anti-Jewish. However, Christian, uh, Zionist Christians are absolutely wrong to reject Luther's main contention that the Jews who disbelieved in Jesus as the Messiah are no longer chosen by God. Why are they wrong? Because this is the clear-cut teaching of the New Testament. 
So here's the bottom line. Zionism is kufur according to the New Testament and according to traditional Christianity. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus tells the Jews, it says, hoi iodaioi, so no longer scribes and Pharisees, he tells the Jews that if they were truly Abraham's seed, they would do the works of Abraham. In other words, the true seed of Abraham are those who follow Abraham. And then he says, no, you are children of your father, the devil, because you seek to kill me. Abraham did not do this. That's the New Testament Jesus. The Jews who disbelieve in Jesus are the seed of Satan, according to the New Testament Jesus. It was, it was New Testament passages like this that prompted the Talmudic rabbis to say what they said. You know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, says the New Testament Jesus. This is a teaching of the New Testament. That's not the Quran or Hadith. I don't agree with this teaching. And, and I don't believe that the historical Jesus of Nazareth taught these things. But why is it that we almost never hear Christians defending these things? It's time for us to ask them, are, are they embarrassed? Are they afraid? I mean, do they consider these teachings indefensible? Maybe Jesus was being hyperbolic here, do, but we don't hear anything from them. Do they consider these teachings, uh, uh, th these, these statements anti-Semitic? If so, why do they continue to believe in them? We need to get clarity. We need to ask them. No, okay, good, good stuff. Let's go here. So yeah, here's here's uh, Martin Luther himself. Yeah, this this man is the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation. This is not some nobody, and this is one of his more mild quotes. And the, the Nazis, of course, love this guy. It's one of the defenses uh, of, of one of the leading Nazis at the, the Nuremberg trials in the 1945 that oh, yeah. he was merely following uh, the great German reformer Martin Luther. This actually became a defense of Nazi ideology that they were actually just following in the footsteps of Martin Luther. And that was not an, an, uh, an unreasonable statement to make in that context because they were actually. Right. Yeah. The Council of Florence uh, is the 17th ecumenical church council is very clear that the Old Testament sacrifices, that is to say, the ceremonial law of the Israelites is dead and deadly. That's the phrase used by Catholic theologians. It's dead and deadly. In other words, the sacrifices are done with. They're dead. They're abrogated. They're mansuch. And it is deadly for the, for the salvation of Christians if they bring back those practices because it is tantamount to denying what Jesus did. It is to deny that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So we see what Zionism does then. It takes the promise that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, and it skips the entire New Testament, okay? It skips Jesus completely and applies it to the modern, murderous, apartheid state of Israel. It's just pure blasphemy. Now, obviously, I don't believe that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. You know, I, I think respectfully, this is a gravely mistaken theology. But again, this is not the point. You know, New Testament believing Christians are supposed to believe in this. And if they truly did, they would not support Zionism, right? They would not be war hawking for Israel and supporting genocide. At least they wouldn't have, you know, blood on their hands. Now, how did the Christians get to this point? Before I get to the brief history, it's important to touch upon the, uh, the geopolitical implications of Christian Zionism, because millions upon millions of Christian Zionists supported the invasion of Iraq for theological reasons, because it was in Israel's best interest. So what is Israel's best interest? Well, it's all laid out in the Yinon plan, written in 1982, okay? It is in Israel's best interest to destabilize and weaken the Arab nations that, that surround Israel, greater Israel, Eretz Israel Hashlema. What is greater Israel? From the Nile in Egypt to the Euphrates in Iraq. Just read the Yinon plan. It's all available, you know, all of this is, is public. Of course, the American public was sold a pack of lies about WMDs, you know, absolutely disgraceful. Uh, 
We have these uh, Christian Zionist leaders and preachers on television with millions of followers stoking hatred for Arabs, hatred for Muslims, offering these half-witted and ridiculous futuristic interpretations of biblical verses in the book of Revelation, which they claimed are referring to Saddam Hussein and, and, and Iraq and you know, Babylon the Great and these types of things. Total nonsense, uh, mother of harlots, all for the glory and protection of Israel, right? War hawking for Israel by means of bad theology, right? This is a murderous ideology. Christian Zionism is a murderous ideology. Who said that? Dr. Stephen Sizer. Dr. Sizer is a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, so he wrote a book called Christian Zionism, Roadmap to Armageddon. And that's exactly what it is. It's a roadmap to Armageddon. He has another book called Zionist Christian Soldiers. So as theists of normative religion, we don't want, Armaged we don't want Armageddon, right? We don't want to see the fitna of the end of days. It's the worst fitna in human history. You know, the prophet said, it's the worst type of tribulation. No one but a psychopath wants to hasten that fitna. So how did Zionism become so popular among American Protestants? Okay, in 1831, an Anglican preacher named John Nelson Darby, okay, was one of the primary organizers of a non-denominational Christian movement called the Plymouth Brethren. Okay, uh, so this is what happens when church tradition is ignored. Uh, interesting historical tidbit here, the parents of Aleister Crowley were devoted members <laughs> of the Plymouth Brethren at one point, even Crowley himself uh, as a child. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Crowley became the founder of. of they're, they're famous, they're famous for being very, very conservative, small sect. You know, very kind of exclusivist Protestant group. So there may have been some reaction uh, from, from. Right. Uh, I mean, they're, um, they're so it, far. It, from, yeah. Yeah. To so that extreme. extreme. You know. You know. Yeah. So then, yes, yeah, so I think Crowley manifested. You know, the polar opposite of of that. Exactly. Um, yeah. So extremism breeds extremism. So so Darby is considered to be the founder of something called modern dispensationalism. Again, here's just a image of Darby here, died in 1882. Okay, so what is modern dispensationalism? So basically it's this notion that the Mosaic covenant and the Christic covenant, okay, are two valid coexisting covenants. They're both valid. This is also known as dual covenant theology. In other words, Christians do not need to convert Jews. Jews already have a valid covenant. Jews are still the chosen people, irrespective of their belief in Jesus. So this is radical. Remember my definition of radical in the context of religion, a drastic and highly significant departure from the normative tradition. This is drastic. The Jews have a valid covenant. So think about the theological implications of this for Christianity. I mean, this, this implies that Christ only came for the Gentiles, not the Jews. That's the implication, and it actually directly contradicts the New Testament Jesus. I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Also, Christ is not the Savior for all, but only for the Gentiles. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world, should, should really read, for God so loved the Gentiles, that he gave his only begotten son, because the Jews don't need him, at least not yet. So let's get to Darby's dispensational doctrine. So... According to Darby, sacred history is divided into seven dispensations, right? Seven periods of time uh, that demonstrate how God deals with humanity, right? So the final three are the most relevant, right? So he calls these innocence. This is from basically the creation to the fall. Uh, conscience, this is from the fall to the flood. Uh, civil government from the flood to Abraham. Uh, promise from Abraham to Moses. 
Now, number five, very important, uh, the law of Moses. This is from Moses to the cross, Moses to the crucifixion. Uh, then what he calls grace. This is from the cross to the rapture. We'll talk about that. This is also known as the sick, sorry, the, the church age. So the sixth dispensation uh, is called grace, also known as the church age. Uh, and then the seventh one is called the kingdom, also known as the millennium, when Christ will rule from Jerusalem after his parousia. All right. So what is this last uh, dispensation, the kingdom? So the kingdom, also known as the millennium, is the literal 1,000 year future reign uh, of Christ from Jerusalem. All right. That, that Christ will rule the reconstituted physical ethnic Jewish state of Israel. So national Israel will be restored, according to Darby. According to Darby, the Old Testament prophesizes not so much the church age, but really the kingdom, the millennium, where Jesus rules the national Jewish state of Israel. So uh, according to Darbian eschatology, the rapture will occur. This is based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, so this is when the church is sort of removed from the earth. The Christians are taken up, right? Uh, so if you're Christian, you don't, you don't want to be left behind, right? There's a famous book series, movie series called Left Behind. Um, so there's the rapture, and then there's going to be a, a horrible seven-year period known as the tribulation. This is apparently described in Matthew and Revelation. This is a time of massive and widespread evil upon the earth during the tribulation. The Antichrist emerges, who will sit in the temple, apparently the third temple. This is what Paul says, uh, and he will declare himself God. Uh, now, this is unique in Darby, such that Christians will be gone before the tribulation. Right? They will be raptured before the tribulation. This is called pre-trib eschatology. The rapture is pre-trib. Right? So there is uh, pre-trib, there's mid-trib, and post-trib eschatology. Right? In other words, the rapture is either before, in the middle of, or after the tribulation. Okay, so for Darby, Christians will experience none of the evils of the tribulation. Then the uh, parousia, or parousia, the second coming, occurs. Okay, the second coming of Jesus. Then you have the kingdom or the millennium, which will manifest. So the second coming is pre-millennial, right? So this, uh, the second coming is prior to the kingdom. Now, there, there used to be an opinion among Protestants that the second coming was post-millennial, that the kingdom would manifest by God's grace before the second coming of Jesus, which meant that basically the whole world was about to repent and accept uh, Christ through Christian evangelizing, and then the world would sort of welcome Jesus with open arms. This was somewhat popular up until the 20th century. Then you had World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, and now almost no one takes that position. No one takes the position that the second coming is post-mill. Okay, So for most Christians throughout history, just to, just to get away from Darby here, so for Catholics, for example, for Catholics, the kingdom is already here. So the kingdom of God and church age are essentially synonymous for Catholics. This is traditional Christianity. Christ is ruling over it right now. So they take this language of the millennium to be symbolic, right? It's not a literal 1,000-year earthly reign. It's a spiritual reality. We're in it right now. So this position is called amillennialism, okay? Now, the book of Revelation states, however, that Satan will be bound during the millennium. So how is Satan bound right now, according to Catholics? Well, Satan is bound in the sense that he cannot prevent people from receiving the gospel, Okay, so this is essentially the, the Catholic uh, position, that the language of millennium is symbolic. Also, there's no rapture in the Protestant sense. So for Catholics, when Christ comes back, 
He won't rule for a thousand years. He'll come back and judge humanity, uh, the nations immediately. The righteous will be taken body and soul into heaven. We can call that a rapture if you like. The evil ones, including Satan and his demons, will go to hell or what the book of Revelation calls the lake of fire. So going back to Darby, Darby advanced a pre-trib, pre-mill dispensational eschatology. So again, what does that mean? The rapture will occur before the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus will occur before the millennium, the literal 1000 year kingdom period. And the millennium uh, is the return uh, of national physical Israel. Okay, so Darby was also a dual covenant dispensationalist. What does that mean again? The Mosaic covenant and the Christic covenant are two valid coexisting covenants. They are both valid right now. Then when Jesus returns to rule over national Israel, all of Israel will believe in him. And so there's going to be something of a reversal. So when he came the first time, they sort of all disbelieved in him. When he comes the second time, they'll all sort of believe in him. Okay. Now, this is really important. Darby was famous for saying that the Bible must be rightly divided. Okay. What he meant was that much of the New Testament does not actually apply to Christians, but, but only to Jews. So remember that the fifth dispensation goes from Moses to the cross, right? That's the law of Moses. In other words, from Moses to the crucifixion, from Moses to the crucifixion, salvation is through adherence to the law of Moses. So according to Darby, the earthly teachings of Jesus found primarily in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were advancing the Mosaic covenant because Jesus lived during the fifth dispensation. You see, Jesus had not yet been crucified. But in Paul's letters after the crucifixion, Paul was teaching the new covenant in the sixth dispensation. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to get into polemics about this because it's, it's obviously a lot of this extremely uh, un-Islamic. But, you know, why, why? just an obvious point to make for everyone, I think, is why did Jesus bother preaching yeah. this stuff only to have it abrogated, annulled, rendered uh, basically obsolete yeah. when a guy comes along who never met Jesus a couple of years later preaching an entirely different message? It's a bit yeah. of a waste of time. Why, why can't just Jesus have preached what... Jesus clearly was not a Christian. He didn't find Christianity. That yeah. came after his lifetime. So it just, it's a very odd religion. <laughs> it strikes yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. And, and, and Darby, he actually said there's two Gospels. Yeah. This was a teaching. So there are basically two versions of the Gospel. One for Jews, which is essentially a reinforcement of the Mosaic Covenant, and one Gospel for the Gentiles, which is what Paul wrote about, salvation through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, for Darby, Jesus was teaching both dispensations, one while he was alive in Galilee and Judea, and one through his so-called apostle to the Gentiles, Paul of Tarsus, after his resurrection. Both covenants are valid side by side. So in Matthew, for example, Jesus says, follow the commandments and you shall enter the life, right? Follow the Mosaic mitzvot, that's the Mosaic covenant in the fifth dispensation. But Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. That's the Christic covenant in the sixth dispensation. Now, I think that Darby was actually onto something. I agree with Darby that Jesus and Paul were teaching. <laughs> You've heard it here gospel. first, folks. You've heard it here first. first. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, we've been saying this for years, right? But it's not because there are, in fact, two gospels or two versions of the gospel. It's because Paul's gospel is a false gospel a pseudo gospel. This is why Paul's enemies, according to his own letters, 
were Jerusalem-based apostles and men from James. James, of course, was a brother of Jesus, the successor of Jesus, the leader right. of the Nazarenes for 30 years. Paul mm -hmm. was an unauthorized, freelance, self-proclaimed apostle of Jesus, or as the Ebionites used to call him, the apostate Paul. So Darby rightly, in my opinion, correctly saw that Jesus and Paul were teaching two different things. But here's the problem. Darby was a Christian, so he had to somehow reconcile this contradiction. As a Christian, Darby believed that the New Testament, the Gospels, and all of the Pauline corpus were true and totally accurate. So that is the real problem, right? So Darby's solution was to claim that the New Testament advances two covenants, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. So that's not the right solution. I mean, the right solution is to take Jesus over Paul and then compare the Christology of the Quran with the Christology of the earliest Christians and become Muslim, basically, because there is an amazing agreeability between uh, the, the earliest Christians and Islamic Christology. So for Darby, God, in effect, right, put the Jews on a timeout, right? <laughs> he didn't replace them. He put them on a time. It's like, you know, go to your room, right? When the Christians of the sixth dispensation are raptured and Christ returns, then God will turn his attention back to his chosen people, Israel, and Jesus will rule over them as king, the king they always wanted, and they'll finally believe in him as the true Messiah. So those Old Testament passages that describe the future kingdom will finally be fulfilled. Now, Darby's dispensationalism uh, eventually found its way across the pond, as they say, to America. An American Baptist uh, named Clarence Larkin, okay, absolutely fell in love with Darby's doctrines. He wrote a book called Dispensational Truth. This book is famous for its sort of elaborate and highly perplexing charts and symbols, you know, sort of sort of a Darby illustrated, so to speak, um, to make it a bit easier to follow, uh, apparently, but it's, it's, it's still very difficult to follow. At least that was his intention. Now, another American pastor, James Hall Brooks, okay, also fell in love with Darby. Uh, Brooks was in St. Louis. Now, there, there used to be an annual Bible conference called the Niagara Bible Conference, and Brooks was often the keynote speaker. So very, very gifted speaker, very eloquent. Uh, it was at this conference where Darby and dispensationalism became more and more popular via James Brooks. So Brooks had a popular preacher friend named Dwight Moody, right? He would later establish the, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, mm -hmm. where Bible is their middle name, as Bar Bart Ehrman always says. Right. Well, but Bart Ehrman actually went to the Moody Bible. Exactly. In, uh, and I've actually been there myself. I mean, I, say oh, been yeah. there, I have physically been in the building because I've often been to Chicago. I love the city. And I, as a tourist, I popped mm -hmm. into, if you can actually go in, I went to the big chapel, and which was empty because it wasn't during a service or anything. Uh, so, but no, but Bart Ehrman actually was a student there. Uh, yeah. After, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And Moody also became a, a, a Darbian dispensationalist. And then Moody befriend, befriended a man named Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Okay. So Schofield was a morally questionable lawyer and politician. He was accused of multiple charges of theft, of bribery, uh, wow. forgery, um, uh, extortion. He was a deadbeat husband and father, a self-described alcoholic turned Christian minister. So he abandoned his wife and children. Okay, wow. and anti-Zionist Christians, anti-Zionist Christians who don't like Schofield, they often quote 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8 in the New Testament sounds like this. Any man who does not provide for his relatives and especially for his own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> wow. 
Anyway, Schofield became an ordained pastor in Dallas in 1883. In 1888, he wrote a treatise called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Okay. Uh, and he started calling uh, himself C.I. Schofield, D.D., right? That is Doctor of Divinity, although there's no record of him. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. Graduating from seminary. <laughs> so he, he, he awarded himself this honor. How, how he did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he gave himself an honorary doctorate, kind of like what, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what Dartmouth College did for Dr. Seuss, right? <laughs> although at least Dr. Seuss admitted he wasn't a real doctor. Mm. So in, in 1909, Schofield wrote his Schofield Study Bible. Yeah. Published by Oxford. So this Bible, the Schofield Study Bible, had a massive, massive impact on American Protestants and evangelicals. So it's no exaggeration that this Bible turned millions of American Protestants into Christian Zionists. I mean, it changed a generation of preachers. So his Bible is essentially a King James translation, but with a lot of his own strange commentary. Okay. And at some point, Oxford has actually given out these Bibles for free. Right. Amazing. But it was his commentary of Genesis 12:3 that I alluded to earlier. Uh, God's promise to Abraham that really changed the whole game. This was the game changer, right? So God said to Abraham, I will bless them that bless you and curse those who curse you. Schofield wrote in his commentary, quote, wonderfully fulfilled in the history of the dispersion. It has invariably fared ill with the people who have persecuted the Jew. Well, with those who have protected him, the future will still more remarkably prove this principle. Okay. Mm -hmm. After Schofield, it, be it became ubiquitous among Protestants that Christians owe unconditional and unquestionable loyalty to the Jewish people because they never cease to be chosen by God. This is all derived from Schofield's commentary. So you see this almost doggish Christian loyalty to ethnic Jews. And this extends to the modern murderous state of Israel because eventually Jesus will rule Israel. That's Jesus's future kingdom according to Darby. In other words, Christian Zionists are bound by their religion to defend Israel, okay? But as we said, in light of the New Testament, the book of Galatians in particular, this is a grave misreading of the text of Genesis 12, right? Paul comments on this, uh, on this uh, covenant that God made with Abraham, and he says it's only limited to Christians and those who believe in Jesus, Jesus and those who believe in Jesus, in other words, Christians. Now, according to the New Testament, the church is the new Israel. The church is a new Zion, which can and does include some ethnic Jews. But belief in Jesus is without question. You have to believe in Jesus. Okay, The sine qua non of being chosen by God is having belief in Jesus. According to the New Testament, the Last Supper, right, the pronouncement and initiation of the new covenant occurred on Mount Zion on Holy Thursday. The descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost occurred in that same room about 50 days later on Mount Zion. So both the establishment of the new covenant as well as the proclamation of the new covenant happened on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So we see what the authors of the New Testament are saying. The Christian church is the new Zion. When Thomas Aquinas wrote his hymns praising Zion, he was praising the Christian church, not some future secular Jewish ethnostate. Mm -hmm. But how did Schofield do it? Okay, so in 2005, Joseph Canfield, he wrote a biography about Schofield called The Incredible Schofield in his book. So according to Canfield, in 1901, Schofield joined an exclusive men's-only secret society called the Lotus Club. Now, Canfield suggests that someone highly influential within the club, he thinks another lawyer named Samuel Untermeyer, basically promoted and financed 
Schofield's Bible project. In other words, Schofield had powerful American Zionists bankrolling his project, okay? Schofield was the textbook definition of what's known as a useful idiot. So this is someone who is used by powerful people to do their bidding without really understanding the consequences of his actions. In 1948, when Israel became a state, Darby and dispensationalism through Schofield exploded even more in popularity among Western Protestants, right? So, you know, Israel has been restored, just as Darby said. This was further vindicated. This just further vindicated dispensationalism. And so Christian Zionists were saying, you know, we better be nice to Israel or else God will curse us, according to Genesis 12.3, coming from Schofield's notes. We better be nice to Israel because it is Jesus's future kingdom, right? Mm -hmm. But what did Paul say? The Antichrist will sit in the third temple in Jerusalem. The Antichrist. The Christ? No, the Antichrist. One of Schofield's students was named Louis Chafer, and Chafer founded the Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. He was the president of the seminary until 1952. A very famous alumnus of, of Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary was a man named Hal Lindsey. I think he's still alive. In 1973. He's still alive. Oh, good. Oh, I think okay. so, yeah. Last I <laughs> Last I checked. So in 1973, he wrote a book that, you know, as you know, took the world by storm. Yeah. Power of, I call it the power of 30 Harry Potters. <laughs> it, was, it was called the late great planet Earth. This is Aleotaiism. Someone needs to compile a list of your, your, your witticisms and publish it in a book. I'm sure it'll be a bestseller. Yeah. Well, that's what it was. 30 Harry Potters. The late great planet Earth. Right, millions and millions of copies were sold. It was, they were sold here. It was a global bestseller, uh, hugely yeah. popular and completely uh, bonkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They even made it into a movie. It was narrated by Orson Welles. But, you know, basically the Bible through a Darbinian, a Darbian dispensationalist lens. That's what it was. Oh, Hal Lindsey, by the way, um, in 1979, he said that Jesus would return in 1988, right? So this was based on a statement in Matthew 24, right? Matthew 24, this generation shall not pass away until all things be fulfilled. The present generation will live to see it all. So according to Lindsay, apparently Jesus was speaking of the restored kingdom. In other words, within one generation of the restored kingdom, Jesus will return. So one generation is 40 years. So 1948, the, rest, the restoration of national Israel, also known as the Nakba, plus 40 years, one generation equals 1988. So it's never happened. Ironically, in the very same chapter, Matthew 24, 36, uh, Jesus says that of that day knoweth no man. <laughs> exactly. Not the angels, not even the sun. Not even Jesus will know. I've just checked on the way, Wikipedia, by the way. Uh, oh. He was born on, uh, Hal Lindsay was born November 23rd, 1929, and he's wow. still alive. He is 94 years young. Wow. So, uh, yep, you're right. He never <laughs> died. He still hasn't died. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So... <laughs> There's something else called the New Schofield Study Bible. Okay, so the New Schofield Study Bible, published by Oxford University in 1984, they added this clarifying comment. So check out this comment here at the bottom of the slide. For a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism brings wow. inevitable judgment. Wow. Now, we know that the New Testament Jesus said that the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But in today's zeitgeist, we're constantly told that any critique of Zionism it's anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. So anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism. This is what we're being told. Which is so a sin. This is a sin. Uh, there's other thing, yeah. by the way. Where does it say in the Bible anti-Semitism is a sin? Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, so, so, then, so then Christians, right, who read that note from Schofield must only conclude that anti-Zionism is the unforgivable sin in the sight of God. So yeah. to restate what Schofield said, for a nation to commit the sin of anti-Semitism, a form of which is anti-Zionism apparently, brings inevitable judgment. In other words, if you criticize Israel, if you criticize Zionism, you will be punished by God, right? Now here's something crazy, a, a Newsweek writer named Hen Mazik, this is recently from the Tel Aviv Institute, I wrote an article called, calling for a ceasefire is an anti-Semitic demand. Oh, yeah. so, let me say it again, calling for a ceasefire is an anti-Semitic anti demand. Calling for the end of the genocide is anti-Semitic. So let me get this straight. Telling these Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, the majority of which are not actually Semites, to stop slaughtering actual Semites is anti-Semitic. This is you, you, couldn't make it, you really couldn't make it up. It's so sick and bizarre. Exactly. You really couldn't make it up. This is the clown world we're living in. So here is uh, Schofield. You know, DD is circled because that's <laughs> yes, it is doctorate at Harvard. Ho ho. Yes. Yeah. So in his commentary uh, of Hosea one ten, uh, Schofield wrote the following: the expression "my people" I'm me in Hebrew is used in the Old Testament exclusively of Israel, the nation. So he's just wrong here. This is demonstrably wrong. I, Isaiah nineteen twenty five: Baruch ami blessed be Egypt, my people. So a, a factual error in his commentary of Genesis, this is what Schofield said. He said, he said, the Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel, so he means physical Israel here. The Palestinian covenant gives the conditions under which Israel entered the promise, the land of promise. It is important to see that the nation has never as yet taken the land under the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, nor has it ever possessed the whole land. This again is just simply wrong. Read Joshua 21, 43. So the Lord gave Israel kol ha'eretz in Hebrew, all of the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. So Schofield wants us to think that this is still an outstanding promise, that God has yet to fulfill his side of the deal. It's amazing. Now, no, so we say, no, he gave them the land, they rebelled, and so God kicked them out, and they must remain in exile until the Messiah comes. This is traditional Judaism. Schofield said, two dispossessions and restorations have been accomplished. Israel is now in the third dispersion from which she will be restored at the return of the Lord as king, end quote. So according to Schofield, the future kingdom will be given to the Jews. But in Matthew, Jesus says to the Jews, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you. So Christians need to ask themselves, Schofield or scripture? But then the problem becomes, if you go with scripture, there are problems with the integrity, the preservation, and accuracy of the text. The only real solution is to become Muslim. Wallahi, this is, Islam is the only solution for them. Now, uh, for this slide entitled Useful Comparisons, I would simply request uh, the audience to watch our last podcast uh, entitled Radical Judaism and the Attack on Gaza from like the one hour 14 minute mark to the one hour 21 minute mark. So this is where we examine the military campaigns of the Prophet Muhammad and the conquest of Mecca in comparison to both the Bible and modern warfare. We also looked at Elisha and the two bears compared to the Prophet Muhammad at Ta'if. We looked at the so-called uh, Ayat al-Saif, the, the verse of the sword, chapter 9, verse 5, its proper interpretation and application. 
and finally the dangers and consequences of blood libels. So I would refer the audience to go back uh, there, uh, inshallah. Okay, so what is harem? Now, we covered this as well in the previous podcast, but I want to reiterate some of these points because they're really, really important. And also they, the verses and information appear now on the slides to make it easier. So this is a war policy mentioned and explicitly described in the Tanakh several times. It's called harem, okay? So we have to know this word. It's in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Samuel, et cetera, et cetera, all over the place. What does harem mean? These are academic sources. These are used in seminaries. The Strong's Concordance, we see here, to ban, devote, utterly destroy, dedicate for destruction, exterminate. Uh, the, the BDB, the, the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew English Lexicon, this is still used in seminaries. I used this when I was a seminarian. Harem uh, to exterminate. Uh, the massacre of all inhabitants, Gisenius, which was used before the BDB, uh, to extirpate, which means to eradicate, eliminate, to utterly destroy. Okay, so we saw this as well. An example of Hedem, uh, Deuteronomy 20, 16, and 17. So here God is telling Moses that the cities that God gave to the Israelites as an inheritance, so the promised land, all living things of the cities must be exterminated. According to the Hebrew, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. And it continues, you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, etc. So total extermination, explicitly ordered by the text. Genocide, explicitly ordered by the text. It's plain and obvious meaning. You don't have to twist and turn it. This is what it says on the surface. Okay. Here's a description here of uh, the conquest of Jericho. You know, we know that we know about the conquest of Mecca. What about the conquest of Jericho? So the Hebrew says, and they, the Israelites, utterly destroyed, exterminated, committed cherem, okay, uh, all that was in the city, uh, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. Okay. So everyone is annihilated, right? Uh, women, children, toddlers, babies, animals. Today they use bombs, of course. So, you know, show me where the Prophet Muhammad ordered the killing of women and children. It's nowhere. It was never the practice of the Prophet to target civilians in wartime. Certainly never women and children. This is just something that's known as ma'adum, it's tawatur, it's, it's multiply attested, it's just simply known. And any Muslim who does anything like this is in violation of the clear teachings of the Prophet. So this is called khiram, okay? So here's the point. The wholesale slaughter of innocent civilians as a policy of war is sanctioned by Jewish and Christian texts. Deuteronomy 20, Joshua 6, 1 Samuel 15 are Jewish and Christian texts. Now, a Christian apologist might say, no, 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 no. Deuteronomy 20 is not a, is not a Christian text. It's a Jewish text. Okay, It's in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. So this is a tactic. This is an obfuscation. So Christians claim that there's one God, right? And that it is the same God in both Testaments. Now, the Marcionites, people can look up Marcion, but he was a Christian preacher, leader in you know the end of the first century, early second century, who said there's actually two gods, but Christians don't believe that anymore. Uh, they believe uh, that the God of the Old Testament was, uh, um, was the same God as the New Testament. And who is this God? Uh, the God of Abraham. So Christians claim uh, that this God is a triune God. So he's a trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Trinitarians also believe in something called the doctrine of perichoresis. Okay, so here's a, a word for the note takers. Perichoresis 
This is the intercommunion, or uh, sometimes they say interpenetration of the three persons of the Trinity. Perichoresis, a Greek term. It means that they are inseparable in action and of one mind. This is absolutely uh, traditional, classic Trinitarian uh, theology. Yeah. <clears throat> inseparable in action. And of, in other words, when they act, when Father, Son, and Spirit act, they always act together and they never disagree. Therefore, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, ordered Cherem in the Old Testament. The Son here, also known as the Logos, incarnated into the flesh of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. So there is no escaping this. There's, there's none of this, oh, that was the Old Testament and that's not a Christian. No, it is a Christian text. It's in the Christian Bible. It's the same God. This cannot be denied. Okay. Uh, now, this is an extremely important question. How do modern rabbinical authorities deal with these harem passages? So it's really three ways. And again, this is a bit of review, but for the sake of seeing these notes in the slide, let's review it. Uh, the normative Jewish opinion, okay, is that indeed this mitzvah, so there's 613 commandments in the Torah, the Chumash from Genesis to Deuteronomy, right? 613 mitzvot. Uh, Number 528, according to the numbering of Maimonides, is the commandment to commit cherem. Leave none alive of the seven nations, it says. And this is taken directly from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. Okay. Uh, and those seven nations are the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and a group called the Girgashites. Now, as we said, Abraham ben Ezra and Hezekiah ben Manoah and many others maintain that this mitzvah, number 528, was only limited to the generation of Moses. Okay, so that's very important. This is according to the traditional understanding that cherem of these seven nations was for that time, at that place, and never again. It's like a one and done. And the reason is because these groups are gone. They no longer exist. So while the 613 mitzvot are believed to be perennial and perpetual, right, they're transhistorical, there's simply no application for this mitzvah because these groups are gone. And Maimonides says, even if descendants of these groups remain unto today, mixed among other nations, as long as their evil culture has gone, their idolatry, their child sacrifice, their debauchery, their immorality, then the mitzvah remains fulfilled and there's no application. So this is traditional Judaism, okay? And of course, we mentioned last time as well, most critical historians don't believe that such massive extermination campaigns ever really happened. But what matters is belief. And the Orthodox take these stories literally. They believe them to be yeah. historically true, as did most eminent Christian scholars from Augustine to Aquinas to John Calvin. Yeah, I mean, someone like Origen of Alexandria, he thought these Chenem passages were figurative, but he's certainly not among the majority. Well, he, thought they're all, he thought they were all figurative. That was his allegorical method, yeah. wasn't it? And he was yeah. anathematized anyway. I mean, in fact, yeah, he was, was a heretic by later people. He was a heretic. Second Council of Constantinople, posthumously anathematized. Um, Okay, so I want to mention this as well. Most apologists, however, will defend these stories. As you know, they'll say that um, that uh, the living the, the living beings were marked for Chedem because they were just evil. Right? Apparently, the babies were evil, the donkeys and cows were evil, as, as we stated last time. Or if they're clever, right? If a Christian apologist is clever, he'll say it's like what Chedem did, according to the Quran. We'll hear this a lot. Chedem in the Quran, chapter eighteen, Surah Al-Kahf. He killed the boy because the boy would grow up into a tyrant. However, this is a false equivalency. 
And I'll tell you why. Clearly, the story of Chiver and Musa and Moses is teaching yeah. a theological lesson. There's no hukum, there's no legal injunction in this story in the Quran. It's a lesson on theodicy and the greater good argument. So Moses was justifiably outraged because Chidr's actions were not normative. Chidr's actions were essentially moral miracles. These are called khawarik al-adat, right? There are physical miracles and there are moral miracles. You know, I don't decide to travel by walking on water because Jesus, peace be upon him, could walk on water. I'll drown. So, so Khidr was operating on the level of haqiqah, on, of reality, right? to demonstrate that sometimes the wisdom behind things that happen in the world that are outside of our control is veiled from us. Exactly. So we operate on the level of the sharia. So and of course, of course, uh, exactly right. So the, the, this is lessons about we don't really know yeah. about the unseen, you know, the, the, the right. hidden uh, motivations of God. We don't know the whole picture. Uh, we have the pixel, but not, uh, to use yeah. uh, um, Hamza Zorsa's wonderful uh, phrase. But of course, in, in passages like 1 Samuel 15 in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish Bible, which yeah. does uh, 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 command genocide, the killing of women, children, and babies explicitly, we are actually told the reason. That is because their ancestors, i.e. not the people being targeted, right. uh, or, or uh, went against or fought against the Israelites as they came out of Egypt centuries before. So this is not a, a, a valid comparison right. at all. Um, right. This is on the level of history where th th there is sort of collective punishment for their descendants. Exactly. We have nothing in our Sharia that orders us to kill uh, children or civilians, right? Uh, there's nothing. The story of Khidr teaches a theological lesson. It's, it's very clear from the context, and as you said, it's very clear from the context of the Bible that these are ahkam, these are actual mitzvot, these are commandments to commit khidr. Now, the second opinion, okay, so that's the first, the, the traditional opinion, this is a one and done, right? The second opinion says that khidr and the Holy Land will happen one more time, but only when the Messiah comes. We have to all wait for the Messiah, okay? And then the Messiah will begin the process of the regathering of the Jews, establishing the Jewish state. He's going to fight the Milchamat Adonai, the, the wars of the Lord, etc. The third opinion is the opinion of religious Zionism. Okay, There has been a consistent and sustained sentiment among religious Jewish Zionist Jews that the Palestinians are the modern-day Canaanites. This is a very common sentiment among the religious Zionists. Therefore, given this notion of Hadchalat uh, Hagaula, modern Zionism being sort of this the beginning of the redemption, it is the religious duty of the government of Israel to, to wage a war of extermination against the Palestinian people. And this is what we're seeing right now, right? This is radical Judaism. Um, so I encourage people to look up Gush Emunim, the Coalition of the Faithful. This was an ultra-nationalistic uh, Orthodox uh, um, Zionist movement, so-called Orthodox Zionist movement founded in the 1970s in Israel by students of Yehuda Kuk. Was a director of the Merkaz Harav and, and son of the son of the infamous rabbi that we mentioned earlier, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Kook. So, in the minds of these religious Zionists, the Israeli government has a religious duty to implement Mitzvah number five five twenty eight and utterly destroy the Palestinians in some form or fashion. They believe that the coming of their Mashiach can be hastened through continued aggression, conquest, and settlement of Palestinian territories. All of this aggression will culminate in the coming of their Messiah as they see it. As an organization, Gush Emonim no longer exists, but their ideology has permeated uh, government officials in Israel. Gush Emonim also championed what's known as the Greater the Greater Israel Project. Okay, so this idea that it is the religious duty of the Israeli government to fully annex all Palestinian territories as they can uh, as they constitute Greater Israel. So Mayor Kahana and Baruch Goldstein were staunch advocates of Greater Israel. 
And of course, the political party known as Halikud is full of extremely dedicated religious Zionists and greater Israel advocates. Likud's chairman is Benjamin Netanyahu, who has also been the prime minister of Israel since 2009. And so he's surrounded by these radical Jews. Here's something interesting. It, it was widely reported that when Netanyahu was the Israeli ambassador to the UN in the 1980s, the famous Rebbe of the Chassad, uh, Chabad Hasidic dynasty, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, told him, told Netanyahu that he would be prime minister of Israel when the Messiah comes. Hmm. And then in 1990, and this is actually, this is documented. You can find this on YouTube. Schneerson is, is sort of commanding Netanyahu. They're speaking in Hebrew. He's commanding Netanyahu to, to do more to hasten the coming of the Mashiach, right? And Netanyahu said, yeah, we're trying. We're trying a few things. <laughs> we're trying. Schneerson died in 1994. Uh, by the way, many Zionists consider greater Israel to be all of the land between the two rivers, right? The Nile yeah. and Euphrates. So this is based on a passage in Genesis chapter 15. So, so mm -hmm. Gaza, West Bank, you know, Golan Heights, that's the tip of the iceberg. Greater Israel is half of Egypt, all of the Levant and half of Iraq. And the Israeli flag might actually depict this. Some say this is, you know, conspiracy theory. And but if you look at the Israeli Israeli flag, you have the two blue lines, the two rivers, and the Star of David in the middle. So the radical Zionist Jews believe that they can use divinely sanctioned violence to essentially prepare the land for the Messiah, the coming of the Geulah, the messianic redemption. Mm -hmm. They can sort of get the ball moving before his arrival. They can start the process. The Messiah will finish it. So this is Cherem, Cherem now in 2024. I mentioned this last time, but I want the audience to actually see the language of Article Two of the um, uh, of the UN definition of a genocide here. So, Roz Siegel is a professor at Stockton University. He's an Israeli journalist. He specializes in Holocaust and genocide studies. In his expert opinion, what Israel is doing right now is a quote textbook case of genocide, textbook genocide, and he cites the UN definition of genocide. Uh, Elon Pape calls it incremental genocide. So, so Zionist apologists will say, oh, that's ridiculous. This is not genocide. If it was genocide, Israel would just kill everyone right now, right? Uh, besides, there are a million Arabs who live in Israel right now, prop, Israel proper, outside the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. No one's killing them, right? So such uh, ignorance fails to recognize that genocide is a process. It took the Nazis years to get to the final solution. Uh, these things don't happen uh, overnight. So here's Article 2 of the UN's uh, uh, genocide convention. So genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in part or in whole, uh, sorry, in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to, to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So Israel fulfills all five. One of these is genocide, according to the UN. Five for five. Now, Dr. Siegel also points out that there, that there are two essential elements here that qualify this as a genocide, okay? So number one, special intent with dehumanizing language, and I'll get to some of that. And number two, conditions to bring about the destruction of the group, that is to say the dynamics of violence on the ground. So, you know, things like cutting off food, water, electricity, destroying hospitals, destroying ambulances, mosques, churches, refugee camps, abandoning babies in hospitals. According to Pape, every 10 minutes, a Palestinian child is murdered. So there is the rhetoric, the reality, and the capacity. 
right? And all three, all three are present. So Israel uses the language of genocide. It implements the structures of genocide and it has the capacity to commit genocide. So speaking of special intent with dehumanizing language, here's that, that infamous quote from Defense Minister of Israel, Yoav Galat, and he said this on October 9th, I've ordered a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, no electricity, no food, no fuel, everything is closed. We're fighting human animals and we're acting accordingly. We will eliminate everything. That is called cherem, right? So we must get to know this word and educate people. Okay. Yes. So Zionism as de deployed by Israel is radical Judaism and radical Judaism is, is terrorism. I mean, people shouldn't forget the persecution of the Palestinians at the hands of, of, of radical Jewish elements goes back to 1917. It was way before October 7th, 2023. It didn't start on 10-7-23, right? That's like saying, you know, the, the Nat Turner slave revolt in 1831 started black-white uh, conflict in America. I mean, it's just asinine. It's just, it's just stupid. Uh, you know, Gallant, he called the Palestinians human animals, right? Now, there is a consistent teaching in Orthodox Jewish circles uh, that there is an essential difference between Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so this cannot be denied, okay? Uh, none other than Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, one of the fathers of religious Zionism, infamously advanced the opinion uh, that the difference between a Jewish soul and a Goy soul is greater than the difference between a human soul and a cow soul. Hmm. Uh, you even find this idea in Jewish writings that Jews have two souls. One's called the Nefesh HaBehemit and one's called the Nefesh HaElohut. In other words, a, a Nefsul Bahimiya and a Nefsul Ilahiya that Jews have a beastly and and divine soul or angelic soul, while, while, whereas the goyim, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, only have a beastly soul. So this is something that many Jewish authorities teach. Even Rabbi Louis Jacobs mentions this in his book, Jewish Theology. Okay. So here, yeah, here's an ayah from the Quran that tells us the difference between traditional Judaism and radical Judaism, right? That if you murder someone, it is as if you've murdered all of humanity. And if you save someone's life, it is as if you saved all of humanity. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, um, indeed, we sent messengers with clear signs, but many from them after this are extremists. Right? That's the difference between traditional Judaism and radical Judaism. There's even more evidence of the special intent of genocide straight from the mouths of Jewish radicals. So the IDF, official IDF spokesman, Danny Hagari, right, he said the emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy. So we have to ask the question, is this defensive? This is minimizing collateral damage. This is surgical and discriminatory, as they say, as they claim. No, the intention is to maximize collateral damage. He admits it. So one mm -hmm. more time, the emphasis is on damage, not on accuracy. This isn't some you know, pundit on Fox News. This is the official IDF spokesman saying this. The former Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, when asked about Palestinian babies and hospital incubators who need electricity to survive, this is what he said. Are you seriously talking about Palestinian civilians? We are fighting Nazis. I'm not feeding electricity or water to my enemies. Just uh, disgusting. Um, Isaac Herzog, the president of Israel, the president. Again, this is not some nobody. This is the president of Israel. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not being aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true, end quote. In other words, 
There is no distinction among Palestinians. All the Palestinians are aware and involved in terrorism, is what he's saying. We can slaughter them en masse. Marav Ben-Ari, Israeli politician and Knesset member, the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves. And this is a woman speaking. What happened to this woman? Zionism happened. Avigdor Lieberman, Israeli politician, member of parliament. He tweeted, I mean, can this be any more clear? Right? There are no innocents in Gaza. And of course, here's Craig McIver again, recently resigned UN official. I just wanted to show the quote uh, uh, to the audience here, the wholesale, the current wholesale slaughter of the Palestinian people rooted in ethno-nationalist colonial settler ideology in continuation of decades of their systematic persecution and purging based entirely upon their status as Arabs and coupled with explicit statements of intent by leaders in the Israeli government and military leaves no room for doubt, no room for doubt that it's a genocide. This is why he, uh, why he resigned. Uh, he continues, what's more, the governments, United States, United Kingdom, and Europe, as you said, are wholly complicit in the horrific assault. Of course, America gives $4 billion a year to Israel. Recently, Biden approved $15 billion to Israel to be used for genocide, tanks, missiles, white phosphorus, you know. And, the, and of course, America was the only country to veto the Euro, uh, exactly. UN Security Council uh, resolution uh, for a, a ceasefire. And it was the US uniquely and solely or globally that actually vetoed this. Yeah. Um, so it, it bears unique responsibility for the genocide, I think. Exactly. Now, when radical religious Jews equate the Palestinians to modern day Canaanites, what is the deeper significance of that? You know, so we need to know some Bible, right? The Bible is the key to understanding what religious Zionists are doing right now, right? This all, go, all goes back to Genesis chapter nine. It's called the curse of Canaan. So in Genesis nine, we're told that sometime after the flood, you know, Noah got drunk, a stall law, God forbid, and passed out in his tent. He was naked. His sons, uh, Shem and Japheth, uh, covered their father's nakedness, but Ham did not. And when Noah woke up, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren, right? So who is Canaan? The son of Ham, the supposed progenitor of the Canaanites. Now, the general consensus of biblical historians today maintains that the book of Genesis was written hundreds of years after Moses, peace be upon him. Genesis was written by multiple authors across multiple centuries around 1000 BCE, starting around 1000 BCE. So, you know, we talked about this in the past, the documentary hypothesis, the supplementary hypothesis, in other words, Genesis was written during a time when the ancient Israelites were engaging militarily with the ancient Canaanites, okay, the people who were indigenous to ancient Palestine. So this story about Noah and the curse of Canaan was written to serve as a piece of political propaganda. It served to insult and to humanize the Canaanites, to make them easier to enslave and kill. This was not written by Moses, right? The point was to say, even Noah cursed these people. Genesis 19, same thing. We're told that two daughters of Lot got their father drunk, then assaulted him, and both got pregnant. The son of the older daughter was named Moab. The son of the younger daughter was named Ben-Ami. The author of Genesis then says, Moab is the father of the Moabites that you see today. And Ben-Ami is the father of the Ammonites that you see today. You see, the Moabites and Ammonites were two tribes that were fighting the ancient Israelites. So Genesis 19 served to bastardize and slander those tribes to justify Israelite aggression against them. You know, these Moabites, these Ammonites, they're all descendants of incest. They're all illegitimate people. Don't feel bad about acting with violence towards them. That's the point, right? And we have, um, you know, the Zionist uh, religious Jews 
they point to Genesis 21, right? Sarah saying, you know, banish this woman, this bondswoman and her son. I don't want him to uh, inherit with my son Isaac, right? So here, look, we're, we're, and, and Abraham agreed. So we're supposed to banish these uh, Ishmaelites from the promised land. And earlier in Genesis, right, uh, when Hagar ran away, God told her, go and submit under the hand of Sarah. Submit yourself under the hand of Sarah. So in other words, you can live here, but you have to be a slave or you have to leave. So this is what's happening. It's apartheid or it's ethnic cleansing. This is how they interpret these verses. Okay, two more mitzvot, mitzvot 604. Cut off the seed of Amalek. That is destroy them utterly. Commit cherem against Amalek. 605, lot out the mention of Amalek, but don't forget Amalek. Also, don't forget Amalek. So both of these are taken from Deuteronomy 25, 19. So extremist messianic Israeli settlers often invoke Amalek as a justification for the massacre and displacement of the Palestinian people. Of course, Amalek was the first nation to fight against the Israelites, according to the Torah, Exodus 17. They're also called the Amalekites. And we said last time also that in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul was ordered by God to commit cherem against the Amalekites, to exterminate their men, women, children, animals, total extermination. King Saul failed, so <clears throat> Amalek uh, continues. Now, the Torah also says, at the bottom of the slide here, hmm. the Lord will be at war against Amalek from generation to generation, Exodus 17, 16. Medor hmm. means from generation to generation. In other words, forever, perpetual warfare against Amalek. The Lord declares perpetual warfare against Amalek. And we said that according to traditional Jews, since it is impossible to identify who is a true Amalekite, this commandment simply cannot be fulfilled. Okay, And Maimonides limits the application of the mitzvah to destroy Amalek to a Jewish king. That at some point in the future, Amalek becomes manifest, only a Jewish king, that is to say, basically the Messiah, can fight against them. And other authorities argue along... Uh, similar lines. <clears throat> in the meantime, Jews must destroy the Amalek within, as it were, the satanic impulses that want to pull us away from God uh, and his commandments. However, among Jewish Zionists is this idea that Amalek refers to any enemy of the Jews in any generation. So here they're talking about a mindset of Amalek, right? Traditionally, it was who is Amalek, you know, sort of genealogically, but now it's the mindset, the mentality, the culture, it continues perpetually. What they say, the middot, the middot, the sifat of Amalek, the characteristics of Amalek. So as we said, the Romans were Amalek of their day, the Nazis were the Amalek. They have to find an Amalek in every generation. Okay? So when we hear the term Amalek, we should know that it is a dog whistle. What is a dog whistle? It is a coded message that only a few people can understand, but now we understand. So here's a quote from the former director of Israel Land Authority, Benzie Lieberman. He said this in 2004. He's a director. Again, these are people in positions of power. It's not some you know, guy on the street in Tel Aviv. The Palestinians are Amalek. We will destroy them. Now we understand what he means. He's invoking cherem, genocide, of the Palestinian people. And this goes back to Plan Dalet in 1948. So these religious extremists, drunk on messianic fervor, are trying to inaugurate their messianic age with a massive human sacrifice. Of course, here's Bibi himself. You must remember what Amalek has done to you. That's the dog whistle. And then he also made this appeal to Israel's 3,000-year legacy, going back to Joshua ben Nun. Interestingly, he starts at Joshua. 
according to the Tanakh, Joshua ben Nun implemented cherem upon the ancient Canaanites. Now, interestingly, Rabbi uh, Yaakov Shapiro, who was an anti-Zionist rabbi and follower of the late Rabbi Teitelbaum, uh, he said that there is no street, according to him, there is no street in Jerusalem named after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. Okay, the naming begins with Joshua. The reason, according to him, is because religious Zionists believe that Judaism actually started with the seizing of the land, not with Abraham, not with Moses, not with the covenant at, at Sinai. No, for them, Joshua is essentially the founder of Judaism. So Netanyahu mentions Joshua, not Abraham or Moses. Of course, Netanyahu also inf infamously claimed that Hitler just wanted to exile the Jews. But when Hitler met with Mufti Hajimin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Palestine, the Mufti convinced Hitler to exterminate the Jews. This claim is beyond lunacy, to quote Norman Finkelstein. Also, he perpetuates this idea with Jordan Peterson. Oh, Palestine was a land without a people. It's a blatant lie. What else does the Torah say about Amalek? Well, here it says, you must blot out the very mention of Amalek from under the sky. So right now, in Western public discourse, any defense of the Palestinian people is being branded as supporting terrorism, and being anti-Semitic, any defense of Palestine. Of course, this makes sense if the Palestinians are deemed as the new Amalek. Simply mentioning them is blasphemous for the Zionists, but we will not be silent. The House uh, in America passed Resolution 894, which makes anti-Zionism anti-Semitic. American politicians are scared to death of offending Jews. Meanwhile, over 20,000 Gazans have been murdered, include including 10,000 children, 2 million displaced. So Gazans right now are slowly starving. They're living in extremely close quarters with limited water, which means that disease is about to spread. This is all a strategy of war deployed by Israel. Uh, deployed by Israel. And, they, and they admit they're weaponizing starvation and disease. Galant and Ben Gavir admit this. Right? This is a war crime. And of course, as we said also, the Zionists release fake images, fake recordings. We know that they deploy the Hannibal Directive. Uh, God knows what they will eventually do with AI. Uh, we have this Israeli actress pretending to be a Palestinian Muslim nurse in Al-Shifa Hospital with fake tears, speaking English with a Hebrew accent, horrible acting. It's all tricksterism. We were told that there was a command and control center under a major hospital. Total lie. Um, you know, uh, the Jerusalem Post went with this narrative that Palestinians are using dolls, fake dead babies. This was debunked. They retracted the story, um, but no apology. These are real babies, real human beings. Israel has to manufacture consent because truth is not with them. And I want to stress this again. Just read the book of Genesis. Just read the book of Genesis. The person of Jacob in the book of Genesis is a master trickster who has yeah. unconditional divine support and sanction for his repeated deceptions. Again, yeah. this is the Torah. This is not the Quran. This is not the real Yaqub alayhi Genesis was not written by Moses, according to a near consensus of historians and scholars, of the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's very shocking re reading Genesis. I, I reread it again uh, recently. And what you say is true. A, a lot of these, uh, the patriarchs, are, are, are very immoral characters, as portrayed in, in, in the current Bible, of course. It's very shocking, actually. Yeah, it's very, very shocking. You know, so, I mean, obviously, there are, there are elements of truth within its pages, but it's depictions of prophets, you know, Jacob, Noah, a lot. Uh, in particular, are not accurate. And of course, uh, Jacob is called Israel. 
So from the very beginning to the end of his life, he's tricking people, he's deceiving people. And we mentioned also even jo Jacob's son, Joseph, gets in on the action at the end of the book of Genesis. He deceives the Egyptians and enslaves them. It's not mentioned in the Quran because the Quran corrects these narratives, right? So as we said, I'll just repeat the statement from last time. If one of their greatest patriarchs described in their most sacred book, who is also the namesake of their nation, was a master trickster, then what do we expect from Zionist Israel? Of course, the motto of Mossad, Israel's national intelligence agency, used to be this. They, they changed it, but it used to be, uh, by deception, you shall make war. So by deception, you, you shall wage war or make war. Right? This is not like al-harbu khida. This is not like in war you can deceive your enemy. No, by deception you may wage war. You may start a war. Hmm. Okay, now what actually happened October 7th? Ah. How many is Israelis were killed? So we were told it was 1,400. Then it said, no, actually 1,300. Then it said it was actually 1,200, maybe 1,100. Were atrocities committed? Yes, atrocities were committed. Were babies beheaded? highly unlikely it is highly highly suspect that women were sexually assaulted this is most likely israeli propaganda intended to tug on our heartstrings uh, and deployed to justify the murder of palestinian women right no people were burned alive and tortured no babies were thrown in ovens there's no evidence of this even the israeli newspaper haaretz said there's no evidence of this <clears throat> israel has lost all credibility of course they never had credibility However, there is evidence that Israeli Apache helicopters filed, uh, fired hellfire missiles at cars and Israeli tanks shelled Israeli homes, <clears throat> causing the death of many, many Israeli civilians. At uh, Kibbutz Be'eri, an eyewitness named Yasmin Porat, an Israeli woman, said that she saw the IDF kill Israeli civilians. An Israeli uh, military veteran named Erez Tidar said that he saw Israeli helicopters and Israeli tanks firing on Israeli homes. And what about these released hostages? You know, why were they so pleasant and nice with their captors? Mm. <laughs> Shaking hands, you know, smiling, saying shalom as they were leaving. <clears throat> as you can see, these scenes have been uh, broadcast very widely on social media. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. The little girl blowing a kiss to her yeah. captives. Mm. Oh, they had Stockholm syndrome. This is what they're saying. Okay, why don't the Palestinian hostages? And detainees have Stockholm syndrome. You know, Palestinian hostages are returned broken and battered. <clears throat> Why do we re rarely hear from these released hostages? The reason is because their firsthand testimony contradicts the Israeli narrative. And the horrible aspect of this <clears throat> is that I've heard otherwise decent and moral people defend Israel's genocide in Palestine. You know, they'll say this is not the same as Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And, and Hiroshima, the express purpose was to target civilians. But in Palestine, the Israeli military says that they don't intend to kill civilians. It just happens on accident. So it's okay. Civilians are killed on accident. So this is absolute nonsense. So according to that logic, Israel could kill, in theory, one million children and say, oh, that wasn't our intention. Whoops, that was an accident. Even CNN reported that up to 45%, okay, 45% of Israeli bombs are dumb bombs. What is a dumb bomb? It means they're unguided. 45% of 30,000 bombs, which is twice the force of Hiroshima, 40, almost half of twice the force of Hiroshima are unguided. So this is indiscriminate. Even Biden called this indiscriminate. He actually used that word. 
and this is a war crime. Now, check this out. If this doesn't convince people, I don't know what will. Well, no, to, to say, by the way, I mean, there, there is the obvious answer. People can see uh, the footage on, on, on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Uh, that just reminds me of, of uh, bombed out cities during the Second World War. We mentioned Dresden and so on, which was firebombed and completely desolate. You could see the ruins of vast areas of cities. Yeah. And that's what we see in Gaza. I mean, the idea that this hasn't happened is absurd because we can see the evidence. Yeah. And there's exactly. not like it's, it's not like this street corner, that road, that neighborhood. It's vast, vast areas are simply flattened. And exactly. that, that for me is is simply the answer. We don't need to argue. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't argue for it, but that, that for me is enough evidence. Right. No, I mean, for, I think for any sensible, logical person who's, you know, who's a decent human being, uh, and looks at the evidence on its surface. It's very clear what's happening here. But but here here's something that it, I, I, if again if this doesn't convince people, I don't know. So, so so the IDF shot and killed three Israeli hostages. Okay, one of them had red hair. What were they doing? Waving a white flag, oh, yeah. and they wrote SOS on a wall in Hebrew mm. while screaming in Hebrew, and they still mm. got shot and killed. Yeah. So how is this being surgical and discriminatory? The IDF murdered a mother and daughter outside a Catholic church in Gaza. They were walking to the bathroom. The Pope called it terrorism after 20,000 killed and 2 million displaced. Now the Pope calls it terrorism, right? Well, you know, how is this being surgical and discriminatory? It isn't, it's clearly indiscriminate. According, according to Human Rights Watch, four hospitals remain out of 32 in Gaza. Attacking a hospital is a war crime. There's only four out of 32 left. And according to Human Rights Watch, no justification has been found for the bombing of hospitals, none. Now, Gaza's population breakdown is roughly 50% children, 25 women, 25 men, okay? That is almost exactly the breakdown of those killed by Israel. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like 45, 27, 27. What does that mean? That means the killing is indiscriminate. And Finkelstein says that if you overlay the demographics of Gaza with the casualties in Gaza, it's basically the same. That means that it is indiscriminate, right? So, and, and he said no other conflict in the world is even close to this. So this is collective punishment. Collective punishment is illegal according to international law. Israel violates the principle of proportionality, the principle of distinction, the principle of pre uh, precaution. How many laws are they breaking? Finkelstein said, Quote, they are using October 7th as a pretext for the final solution to the Gaza problem. End quote. Chris Hedges, uh, he said that Israel's goal is to turn Gaza into a moonscape, exactly what you were describing. What does the surface That, that, that is wholly credible. Wholly credible. Yeah. Exactly. That's the goal is to annex Gaza, turn it into a parking lot. So they keep recycling this human shields argument. Right? Again, this is their bread and butter. So first of all, Israel uses human shields. Okay, they allow settlers, civilians, to live on occupied territories, stolen land, right next to Israeli military bases. They are putting these people in harm's way. They are using settlers as human shields. Let's analyze, analyze Israeli logic here. So let's pretend that someone commits murder and runs into your house, okay, and hides somewhere. And that the police know he's in your house. And so the police call you and they say, get out of your house because we're going to blow it up. And you say, oh, wait a minute, why would you destroy my home? We have nowhere else to go. Uh, why don't we exit our house and you can send cops to find this guy, pull him out and arrest him. And they say, no, your choice is leave your house so we can bomb it or stay and we'll bomb it. So they bomb the house 
And then the police blame the murderer for your death and the death of your family. He was using them as human shields, right? How stupid is that? This is just asinine. I mean, these people are clowns. The human shield argument is Israel's tactic for justifying genocide. That's all it is. I'll end, I'll end with this. Deception is everywhere. The Western media is gaslighting the world. The oppressed are depicted as the oppressors and vice versa. David is seen as Goliath. Goliath is seen as David, right? It's very strange. Now, this is a supplication I mentioned last time that I want people to see. I want people to see the Arabic so they can pause. They can, if they don't have it memorized, to memorize it. This dua is so crucial for us uh, right now, right? That Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa razuqna itiba'a, right? The Prophet ﷺ, he said, oh God, show us the truth as truth and give us the ability to follow it. Wa arina al-batila batilan wa razuqna ijtinaba. And show us falsehood as falsehood, give the ability to shun it. This is very important. Amen. And then these two hadith I quoted last time as well. The first one is in the Sunan of Abu Dawood. The Prophet said, let him who hears of the Dajjal, the imposter, so I keep a distance from him. I swear by Allah that I will come to him thinking he's a firm believer and I'm following him because of confused ideas. Shubuhat. So this is what we were talking about earlier. It's like how can you know seemingly logical people just fall for this nonsense? You know, isn't it just clear that, that what's happening here, where they're being confused, these shubuhat, these heretical ideas, confused ideas, you know, these, these muddy waters that people are being uh um, exposed to. So may we never see the actual Dajjal, but the culture of the Dajjal is already here. We must protect ourselves. And of course, here is uh, uh, a, a statement from a companion of the Prophet Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَتَعَوَّذُ مِنْ عَذَابِ جَهَنَّمْ وَعَذَابِ الْقَبْرِ وَمَسِيحَ الْدَجَالِ The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, used to seek refuge in Allah from the punishment of hell, the punishment of the grave, and from the imposter Messiah. And the Prophet, of course, is teaching us by example. So we need to protect ourselves against the Antichrist. There's, there's a hadith where the Prophet said, الدُّعَى سِلَاحُ الْمُؤْمِنِ That supplication or prayer is the weapon of the believer. And there's some weakness in the chain, but it's true. So I request from the audience that they pray for the people of Gaza, pray for their souls. Many of us are completely powerless to do anything. When we can't change anything with our hands or our tongues, so what do we do? Well, we hate the oppression in our heart. It's the weakest of faith. The Prophet said, it's the weakest of faith, but it's still faith. It's still yeah. something, right? So give charity, give, give you know, sadaqah, do extra prayers. These are not insignificant. I mean, Allah looks at the intention and sincerity. Allah can work miracles. Allah is muqallib al qulub. He's a changer of hearts, right? We, we know that a man in the inner circle of the Pharaoh was a secret believer. Allah changed his heart. May Allah change the heart of the Israelis, right? May they see with clarity what they're doing and stop their oppression. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sunnah to be optimistic. We should be optimistic. The prophet was optimistic. And inshallah, in the next generation, no one will dare attack Muslims like this, like, what, like they're doing right now, because we'll be more organized. We'll be a united front. Muslims are coming together right now over Palestine. Muslims yeah. are making tawbah and, and rededicating themselves to Allah and his messenger. There, there's a spiritual revival happening right now, as we said, Palestine is the epicenter. Non-Muslims are converting to Islam right now uh, due to Palestine. So remember what we said at the beginning of the podcast, our state in the world will not change uh, until we realize and take it to heart that Allah, only Allah can help us. That when we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with all of our being from the bottom of our hearts, then our conditions will improve. Mm -hmm. When we realize that the only opinion that matters is Allah's opinion, then we'll see change. Nothing else is really going to help us, right? 
We must have obedience to Allah and His Messenger, cling to the Quran and Sunnah, right? And, and the very pillar of this religion is the prayer, right? If the Shahada is, you know, the tent or the canopy, then the pillar that holds up the religion is the prayer, right? As-salatu imadu deen. So don't leave the prayer. It's very important. Uh, and then we have this dua. So learn this dua. I encourage the, uh, the audience. This is our weapon. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adhabi jahannam wa min adhabi al-qabr wa min fitnati al-mahyai wa mamat wa min sharri fitnati al-masih al-dajjal. So, O oh God, I seek refuge in you from the punishment of hell and from the punishment of the grave and from the tribulations of life and death and from the evil of the tribulations of the imposter and messiah. Now, I did have... I mean, here. I had one more slide. Oh. I mean, yes, thank you. And th these are just some FAQs I want to just do very quickly here. We have a little bit of time, um, and then we'll and then we'll be done, inshallah. So these are questions that um, I've been getting recently um, that I just want to sort of share my thoughts on for the, for the sake of the benefit of the audience, inshallah ta'ala. So the first question is, and right, so you have uh, Zionist apologists that will say, why don't Arab countries take in Palestinians? They'll say something like, even your own Arabs don't want them. Something like that, right? So this yeah. is a very common tactic. Of very, being, very horrible thing to say. Very horrible. Yeah, thing. I mean, I mean, uh, Finkelstein said that this was Hitler's argument about the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. Why didn't the European countries want the Jews before the Holocaust? I mean, America and the UK shut its doors to Jewish immigration. So we can answer this question in, in several ways. So for, first of all, according to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, uh, 3.5 million Palestinian refugees were taken in by Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria yeah. alone. That's right. so, so Muslim countries have taken in Palestinians, millions of them. But there's yeah. another side to this. By taking in Palestinian refugees, you know, every time Israel decides to mow the lawn, these Arab nations would be indirectly complicit uh, to the ethnic cleansing agenda of Israel. You know, Zionist uh, propagandists want to guilt trip Arab nations for not being an accessory to the Israeli policy of ethnic cleansing. You know, why should they take in millions of refugees? Israel needs to stop displacing Palestinians. Yeah. That's the problem. That should be the focus. They need to stop displacing Palestinians. So again, let's imagine once a week, okay? Let's imagine once a week that the police come into my house and beat up my children. And so I go to a judge and the judge says to me, well, uh, just have your kids move into your neighbor's house. Is that really the solution? No, tell the police to stop their injustice. And my neighbor would say, no, tell the police to stop their injustice, stop beating up my kids, stop mm -hmm. displacing Palestinians. That's the problem. Yeah, the yeah. third aspect of this is, is that many Palestinians, they don't want to leave. They want to stand their ground with honor. That's their country. That's their home. Zionist propagandists essentially want Palestinians to ethnically cleanse themselves. And finally, can these countries even provide? what it takes logistically to support tens of thousands of refugees. So that's an open question. The second question is, does Israel have the, doesn't Israel have the right to defend itself? So here's an analogy that I think vividly captures the answer to this question. And I borrowed this analogy from another Muslim speaker, but I think it is very uh, well done. I think it's very vivid and, and strong. So, so imagine that you can, you can only see a man and a woman from the waist up, right? And then suddenly this woman, seemingly out of nowhere, unprovoked, attacks the man and starts tearing at his face. And she starts ripping pieces of flesh off his face with her fingernails. Does that man have a right to defend himself? Yes. So 
you know, let's say that he starts fighting back and he ends up knocking her unconscious. Well, she attacked him, right? He has a right to defend himself. But then you see their lower half and he was raping her. Does it even matter to you now that the man has a right to defend himself? Do you even care? Of course, every individual human being has the natural right to self-defend. This includes both Palestinian and Israeli civilians. But how can we speak of Israel's moral right of self-defense or legal right of self-defense or the IDF's moral or legal right of self-defense when it is Israel and the IDF who are the oppressors, the aggressors? So no, Israel has no moral right to defend itself. Israel has no moral high ground to stand upon. You know, did, did the uh, Seleucids have a moral right to defend themselves against the Maccabees? You can ask a religious Zionist. When the Maccabees rebelled against the oppressive rule of their Greek overlords and took back the city of Jerusalem and the temple, did the Greek Seleucids have a moral right to defend themselves against the Maccabees? Or a more contemporary example would be apartheid South Africa when uh, the yeah. ANC and Nelson Mandela were attacking uh, the apartheid government. Well, surely the apartheid government had the right to defend itself and we, we must respect the right of the apartheid regime to defend itself. We condemn Nelson Mandela. And by the way, the United States and Europe did classify Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. Yeah. But now no one on the planet, I think, outside loony Nazi circles, perhaps, uh, thinks that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist right. or, that, or that de Klerk and the apartheid South African government had any moral right to defend itself. I think the analogy is very, well, one can give other analogies, but uh, uh, but uh, as you have done, but I think that that's one that I like most because yeah. many people are waking up to the idea that, that Israel is actually an apartheid state as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. The great awakening, it's happening. The third question here, are you anti-Semitic? Okay, so this is a very ambiguous question. We shouldn't let people get away with ambiguities. So here I would ask, where does the word Semitic come from? You know, like what is the etiology of the word Semite? Yeah. Most people won't have, have no idea, right? So it comes from Sam or Shem, the son of Noah. So who are the Semites? Jews and Arabs or Israelites and Ishmaelites. Now as Muslims, we believe in prophets and the Ulul Azamina Rusul, right? The five most exalted prophets, right? Four out of five of them are Semites. And these are the most beloved human beings to Muslims. So how can I be an anti-Semite? So what they really mean, what they really mean is, are you anti-Jewish? Yeah. But here again, we need to clarify, how are you using the word Jewish as an ethnicity or a religion? If as an ethnicity, no, that's stupid. Hating people for something they had no control over is stupid. Mm -hmm. And I'm not stupid. Racism is stupid. Okay, they'll say, uh, are you anti-Judaism, right? So here again, we have to ask, what do you mean by Judaism? Am I anti-traditional Orthodox Judaism? No, traditional Jewish Orthodoxy is a respectable religion that believes and reveres the God of Abraham, enjoins people to righteousness, has a deep tradition, spiritual tradition. Am I anti-radical Judaism? Yes. Why? Because radical Judaism has incorporated Zionism. And Zionism is an inherently violent and murderous ideology, as well as blasphemy from both traditional Jewish and Christian perspectives. Okay, now at this point they might say, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So we should respond, so all of these hundreds of thousands of anti-Zionist Jews are all self-hating Jews? Why do they hate themselves? Why do the Satmar and the Natura Karta and most of the Hasidic Jews of the world hate themselves? You know, are these anti-Zionist Jews not real Jews? 
right? So these are questions we need to push back a little bit because that sounds awfully anti-Semitic to me, right? So don't let people get away with ambiguities. The fourth one here is aren't Jews uh, indigenous to Palestine? And this is related to this horrible and ridiculous argument that Jews lived in Palestine 2000 years ago, so they have a right to the land. Yeah, in, in, in the north of historical Palestine, 2,700 years ago, there was a kingdom called Israel. Now, there was a Muslim woman in the Bay Area in California here who, uh, who came, came to one of my lectures, and she said, I have these two Zionist friends uh, who say that, uh, you know, Jews lived there 2,000 years ago, so they should have that land, right? And at the time, I didn't think about this, but um, I thought about it later. I was going to tell her that I want you to imagine that, uh, that uh, a group of indigenous Ohlone's or Miwoks, these are like native tribes, uh, they came to their house in, in the Bay Area in California. They showed up at their house, your friend's houses, these Zionists. And they said, you know, uh, forget about 2,000 years ago, uh, 200 years ago, this was our land. So get out of my house. What would your friend say to these Miwoks, these Ohlone's? They would call the cops, right? So we can play these games all day long, right? Well, the Canaanites were there before the Israelites. So the Canaanites mm -hmm. were indigenous to the land. Right? And the Palestinians have genetic continuity with the ancient Canaanites. So guess what? The Palestinians are indigenous uh, to the land. But then who was there before the Canaanites? And before them and before them. So uh, the word indigenous must be understood within the framework of colonialism. So this is the answer. So if right now the Chinese invaded the U.S., let's say, and rounded up groups of Americans, took their homes and put them in specific designated areas, those Americans would be, quote, indigenous to the land in light of the Chinese invasion. And eth ethnically, they would be European, they would be Arab, they'd be Indian, they'd be Jewish, they'd be Asian, African, Chinese, etc. When the settler colonial project began in historical Palestine under the British, the Arabs were 94% of the population who had lived there for generations. The Arabs are indigenous. End of story. And the other thing is the Arabs did not expel the ancient Jews from Palestine. Those were the Romans. The Arabs, that is to say the Muslims, allowed the Jews back in. The Arabs did not destroy the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE. That was the Assyrians. The Arabs didn't destroy the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BCE. That was the Babylonians. And the Arabs did not commit the Holocaust. Those were the Germans. And the last question here, are the Ashkenazim real Jews? So here I would um, uh, recommend the, the work of Professor Martin Richards. Martin Richards. So he's one of the archaeogeneticists, okay, of a research group at the University of Huddersfield in England. Okay, so this was a research project conducted in 2013. And so this is an article summarizing the research from the university website. So I'm, I'm quoting here uh, the article. It, it's not, it's, it's a couple of paragraphs long. It won't take too long. So he says, it is usually assumed that their ancestors, so he's talking about the Ashkenazim, European Jews, migrated into Europe from Palestine in the first century AD after the destruction of the second temple by the Romans with some intermarriage with Europeans later on. But some have argued that they have a mainly European ancestry and arose by conversion to Judaism of indigenous Europeans, especially in Italy. Others have even argued that they were largely assimilated in the North Caucasus during the time of the Khazar Empire, whose rulers turned to Judaism around the 10th century AD. Archaeogeneticists, archaeogenetics, sorry, can help solve this dispute. Why chromosome studies have shown that the male line of descent does indeed seem to trace back to the Middle East, but the female line, which can be illuminated by studies of mitochondrial DNA, has until now proved more difficult to interpret. 
This would especially be intriguing. This would be especially intriguing because Judaism has been inherited maternally for about 2,000 years. We have settled this issue by looking at large numbers of whole mitochondrial genomes sequencing the full 16,568 bases of the molecule. In many people from across Europe, the Caucasus and the Middle East, we have found that in a vast majority of cases, Ashkenazi lineages are most closely related to Southern and Western European lineages, mm -hmm. and that these lineages have been present in Europe for many thousands of years. Hmm. This means that even though Jewish men may indeed have migrated into Europe from Palestine about 2,000 years ago, they brought few or no wives with them. They seem to have married with European women, firstly along the Mediterranean, especially in Italy, and later, but probably to a lesser extent, in Western and Central Europe. This suggests that in the early years of the diaspora, Judaism, Judaism took in many converts from amongst the European population, but they were mainly recruited from amongst women. And here's the conclusion. Thus, on the female line of descent, the Ashkenazim primarily traced their ancestry neither to Palestine nor to Hazaria, but to Southern and Western Europe. Translation. And that, and, and that explains, by the way, why uh, 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 the, the, many of these, if not all of the Jewish uh, Israeli po po uh, politicians and leaders just look like Europeans to me. Yeah. Uh, they just, I mean, if you didn't know who they were and you saw them walking around London or New York or Paris, you think, yeah. oh, well, they're just Westerners. Like, you know, you wouldn't see them as, oh, these are Semites from the Middle East or something. You wouldn't have that. These right. are, I don't respond like that. Yeah. Well, let me just give my quick translation here of that article. Oh, and yeah. I'll be done. Translation, the vast majority of Ashkenazic Jews are not actual Jews. By, by the definition of Judaism, the Torah mm -hmm. and the Talmud, and by definition of Israel's own law of return. Let me say it again. The vast majority of Ashkenazic Jews are not actual Jews by definition of Israel's own law of return. They are not Semites. That means that the vast majority of the, quote, Jews who made Aliyah to Israel from Europe, who did not believe in the religion of Judaism, many were atheists, were not actually Jews. So the state of Israel was essentially founded by a bunch of atheist European Gentiles. This is the state that tens of millions of Christian Zionists support. And that is the end. <laughs> My goodness me. Uh, that, that, that's, that's an extraordinary uh, uh, end, ending uh, as well. And, and of course, I think you said uh, earlier on that the you know, what, what is a Jew? A, a Jew in traditional Orthodox circles was a Torah observant person, right. someone who uh, upheld the commandments of God. And that has always been my uh, understanding of uh, a, a inverted commas, a, a real Jew, if you like. But, but it, it, this is even more uh, disturbing uh, that the claim to be Jewish when in fact one's ancestry is overwhelmingly European. Extraordinary. Thank you very much for that last point about the uh, the evidence. Was it was it University of Huddersfield, did you say? Huddersfield, yes. Extraordinary. I didn't realize that they produced uh, such work. Uh, very good. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, thank you uh, very much in, in, indeed, uh, uh, um, Professor Ali Atai, for your extraordinary work uh, and sharing some fascinating uh, historical facts uh, uh, that this is not uh, speculation. Uh, everything you said is based on uh, actual uh, reason uh, and documented evidence. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll leave it there. So until next time, salam alaikum. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.